you're listening to a Two Jackets podcast. Check out more at twojackets.com. Hey, everybody. Eric here, welcoming you to Volume 2 of our Sham Fiction Just the Fix Shamthology Special. Now, what the heck did I just say? What does that mean, you're asking at home? Well, I'll tell you. This is something we like to do every few months, where we take the last uh, several weeks of sham fictions and kind of cram them all together into a single episode. So this is just going to be the fix. As the, as the title implies, there's not going to be any, any extra banter. There's not going to be any extra setup or reactions. It's just the fix. So if you're on a long drive or taking a really long bath, I mean, watch out for pruniness, guys. This is like a two and a half hour thing. Just sit back, relax, and just listen to our stories. If you prefer to listen to the whole episodes, they're all still available online. That's shamfiction.com. And we'll have a new episode, just like normal for you, next Sunday. So tune in. But for now, enjoy Volume 2 of Just the Fix. From Episode 13, Eric writes Magic Mike XXL based on the film written by Reed Carolyn and directed by Gregory Jacobs. The lights are flashing. The music is loud. The women are screaming. Dollar bills are flying through the air like confetti. But it's not enough. The boys are moving, their bodies covered in sweat, gyrating to the relentless beat. The floor of this abandoned high school gym is slick with spilled drinks. But it's not enough. Ripped shirts and flyaway pants are lying discarded, ignored by the throng. The place is packed and the air is hot. But it's not enough. Large tables are being used as small stages. This gym isn't their usual type of venue, but they make do. All these women had gotten wind that the kings of Tampa were in Savannah, so they came. If the women came for a show, the kings would give them a show. Rome moves through the crowd, deftly making way for them as they dance and wildly throw their arms into the air. She passes Tito, spread eagle as a half-dozen college girls sipping fruity beverages try to rip off his mesh shirt. There's Big Dick Richie, proving his namesake with a pair of two sizes too small biker shorts. She passes Tarzan and Ken, doing a synchronized routine that the women are eating up. The party is going well, but it's not enough. She's missing her headliner. She passes Andre, mixed in with the women on the floor. He's barely visible amongst the sea of glitter and flesh, but she can hear his words. Your man is a tyrant, your man is a fool, a fire for your hydrant, no match for your rule, your beauty is total, your booty is tight, now show me your man and I'll give him a fight. (laughs) She's through the door, marked men, and hears no more of Andre's song. She passes a row of lockers, then she finds him. Her headliner. I know what you're going to say, Rome, he says through racking sobs. You do, huh? She says, no question in her voice. You know I'm going to say the kings need their magic mic out there? If you knew I was going to say it, then why are you in here? Mike sniffs and lifts his head, looking Rome in the face, showing her his tears. 
I can't do it, Rome, he says, before putting his head into his hands. She approaches him, but doesn't sit down next to him on the bench. She crosses her arms and lifts her chin, looking down at him. This crowd needs some heat. The boys have given them an appetizer, but if you don't go out there and give them the main course, the kings of Tampa will never make it to the World Series of Stripping in Myrtle Beach. (laughs) Mike lifts his head and wipes the tears from his eyes. He thinks for a beat, then says, The hot-crossed buns? The cucumber salad? Nah, says Rome with a smirk. Those routines are weak. We need something with more heat. The California hot pot? You gotta be joking. He chokes. No, Mikey, you're not listening to me. These ladies need you to bring the big guns. I'm talking some magic shit they've never seen before. Rome, he protests. It's over. I can't do it anymore. All these parties, you know. Night after night we're dancing and putting our hearts out there. For what? I've got nothing left to give. Rome squats down to Mike's level and looks him square in the eye. You've got so much more to give, Mikey. For what you ask, I'll tell you what for. It's for the ladies of the world. And that ain't nothing. That whistle's about to blow, and when it does, you need to give these ladies everything you have and then some, because they're worth it. Mike sniffs and nods, but doesn't meet her gaze. Yeah, it's for the ladies, but they don't need me. The whistle blows in the gym, and the women all groan in disappointment. Rome stands just as the boys start jogging into the locker room, fist-pumping, bro-grabbing, and wiping the sweat from each other's bodies. (laughs) Shit, bro! Oh my god, bro! You're on fire, chief! Tito gushes to Richie. Nah, dude, my shit is weak, Richie says morosely, high-fiving Ken as he joins the group. Richie, man, it's cool, Ken says as he slaps Tarzan's ass. Fuck, we all have off days, you know? Speaking of off days, says Andre as he saunters in and spots the scene before him. What's wrong with Mike? They all look over to see Rome standing over Mike, who gives a soft nod of acknowledgement, wiping the last remaining tears from his face. Yeah, Mike, what's wrong, bro? Tito offers. Shit, you gotta get out there, Mikey, says Richie, taking off his fireman's helmet. These ladies are hungry, dude. (laughs) He thinks he's got nothing left to give, says Rome with a smile. He thinks he's all washed up. Fuck, you can't be for real, bro, says Tito. (laughs) Sorry, guys, Mike chokes. I thought I was magic. I thought I was XXL. (laughs) But I'm just Mike. Rome laughs, and Andre nods along with the laughter like a beat. You're not just Mike, she says with music in her voice. And you've got one thing these ladies have never seen. Andre catches on and takes up the chorus. Rome said it, bro. You know the routine. You've been practicing it for weeks. What? Spits Mike, (laughs) panic in his voice. Not that one. That's the one, says Rome, nodding along to the groove. The whole enchilada. Everyone in the room gasps. The whole enchilada, Tito repeats. 
Shit, bro, nobody's ever done that before. No, there's no way, says Mike, shaking his head. I'm not ready. The whole enchilada, Richie echoes. That might just work. Do it, man, Ken says. I know you can do it. Sorry, guys, but no, Mike insists, punching the bench to show that he means it. There was a time <laughs> when I would have done anything for the ladies. But now, I'm just a simple furniture maker. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> Everyone in the room groans and looks to the floor. Even Rome hangs her head in disappointment. Nobody speaks, and the sad silence hangs in the locker room for a moment like a wet fog. Then, out of the back of the room, Tarzan speaks up for the first time. Yeah. Mike, he says. All heads turn to Tarzan. These ladies didn't come here for cheap drinks. They didn't come here for good music. They didn't even come here for us. They came here for escape. They came here to leave their lives behind for one night in search of something greater. Something magical. Something special. They're chasing the unicorn, Mike. Help them find it. All the heads in the room nod and turn back to Mike. Through the throbbing dance beats out in the gym, a chant can be heard. It grows louder and louder until they can all make out the words, Magic Mike! Magic Mike! Rome pats Mike on the back and says, You're up, Mike. Mike stands. The boys start to cheer and bro-grab. They make way for their leader, and Mike jogs out of the locker room and climbs onto the stage to the sounds of Magic Mike. The ladies all see him, and the chanting turns to cheering. They rush the stage, spilling drinks, ripping clothes, and pressing their bodies together to get closer to the legend himself. The music stops for a brief moment. And it's as if the entire room takes a breath. The rest of the kings of Tampa spill out of the locker room and stand back just to be witness to the historic event. <laughs> Pony by Genuine hits the speakers. Oh, the yeah. women scream. Mike moves. The women scream. He throws off his shirt. The women scream. He is music incarnate. He is love in corporeal form. He is magic fucking Mike fucking XXL. <laughs> Here it comes, Andre whispers to his bros as the song reaches the climax. The whole enchilada. And just as Pony hits the chorus for the final time, Mike's pants fly off and there it is. It's his dong. It's his dong dancing as if controlled by a puppeteer's string. All the women in the room explode in an orgasmic frenzy of pleasure and madness. Mike's face is tight with concentration as his dong leaps and gyrates to and fro, mesmerizing the crowd with its acrobatic skill. Tito's eyes fill with tears. It's beautiful, he says. And it is.
the end. From episode 14, Andrew Wright Steelheart, based on the novel by Brandon Sanderson. Four bowls were arranged on a stainless steel tray before me, not a silver tray. That part was important. The bowls were filled with a carrot ginger soup with toasted almonds. I knew that because I had been tasked with memorizing the menu for the evening, including the ingredients in each dish and where those ingredients were sourced. I had never eaten food like this before in my life. A pair of swinging doors were before me, through which other waiters moved in and out. My task and target lay beyond. Megan's voice echoed in my head. Don't be a slon's knees, she told me earlier. <laughs> why did everything she have to why did everything she say have to stick with me, whether good or bad? <sighs> I straightened my posture. In my pristine white uniform, I looked the part, but I felt exposed. I missed my rifle. The tiny handgun strapped to my left side beneath my uniform just felt inadequate. <laughs> Ready or not, it was time to get to work. Into the vulture's nest, I said to myself. Static crackled in my earpiece. Viper's nest, Tia said. <laughs> what, I asked? I into the viper's nest, David, she said. That's the saying, not vulture's nest, and you shouldn't be talking to yourself. <laughs> right, I replied before realizing that I shouldn't have replied. Don't be a slon's knees. <laughs> I took a deep breath, pushed my back against one of the kitchen, kitchen doors, and stepped out into the Steel Coast Ballroom of the historic Drake Hotel. Before this week, I had never set foot in a room like this either. It was very long, running nearly the full length of the massive hotel. A series of large windows with black velvet curtains ran along the exterior wall, looking out upon the solid steel waves of the Lake Michigan. Two rows of polished steel pillars lined either side of the room from end to end, and a ridiculous number of chandeliers hung from the ceiling. Throughout the room, rows upon rows of round tables were set, and hundreds of my enemies sat around them. This was the Enforcer's Ball. A banquet to honor the men who carried out the oppressive laws of Steelheart. The room was filled with the highest-ranking men in the force. All wore dark gray dressed uniforms adorned with medals and pins representing their accomplishments and rank. I did my best to ignore their laughter and mirth. These men had had a choice at one time in their lives, and they had chosen Steelheart and the Epics over their own people. But none of these men were my target. That particular individual sat at the high table, which was placed upon a raised platform in the center of the room to remind everyone of who here was really important. He wore a glossy black suit on his slender frame and looked out at the crowd with a scowl of resentment. What a smug slons, I thought as I approached. <laughs> he was called the Mouth of Steelheart. <laughs> He was the Emperor's culinary curator, as he planned and oversaw the preparation of Steelheart's meals. However, he had an even more important role which attracted Prof's attention. He was Steelheart's taster. Before his Emperor's every meal, the mouth was responsible for detecting poisons in the food and drink. He had the ability to sense poisons through smell and taste, and he was also immune to them. This immunity gave him a prime invincibility making him a prime target for the Reckoners. <laughs> the mouth was seated at the center of the high table next to the chief enforcer. They were joined on the chief's side by his wife, and on the mouth's side by a powerful, a powerful epic named Foresight, with whom I was told to avoid contact at all, eye contact at all costs. 
If he locks eyes with you, Prof said, all will be forfeit. <laughs> I had been dreading his presence all week. I maneuvered my way through the bustling crowd toward the high table. No one in the room paid me any mind. Even with the sweet server skills I had acquired over the last week, I had about three <laughs> near collisions. Clearly these people didn't care if their uniforms were dyed carrot orange. At last I reached the high table, thankfully without a drop spilled. I climbed each step up to the platform with a great amount of concentration, careful not to jostle the tray. I could feel myself perspiring. Stop it, I thought to myself. You're used to firefights, man. This is simple. Just get it done. I crossed to the right shoulder of the chief's wife, as I'd been taught, and placed the first bowl down with incredible care. Sparks, she cursed. About time. Tell those cooks <laughs> back there to pick it up. Yes, ma'am, I replied. One down. The chief was next. He was telling the mouth a story, so I hung back. His reddened face and animated gestures betrayed the state of his sobriety. Get this. He called himself the Spleen, the chief stated with a laugh. <laughs> and you'll never believe why. Turns out his bowels produced a noxious agent. When the guy... Uh, uh, the chief belched before continuing. <laughs> when he passed gas, he could knock out the whole room. <laughs> with this, the chief went into a laughing fit. The mouth did not look amused. Pardon me, sir, I said to the chief. I have your first course. The ruddy man turned to me as he wiped tears from his eyes with a cloth napkin. Yes, yes, he said. Sit it, set it down. I placed the soup before him and crossed to the mouth's right side. This was it. I looked down to my tray and picked up the third bowl. Suddenly, hesitation bubbled in the back of my mind. Did you get the order of the bowls right? Are you sure this is the right one? What if what if Prof was wrong? What if, what if this doesn't work? I must have been frozen for too long because Tia popped into my ear. David, what are you doing? Then, I heard his voice. Who is this? The mouth asked. He was looking right at me. I don't recognize this boy. Oh no, I thought. <laughs> Relax, Sir Mouth. The chief said, All our servers went through a detailed screening process to ensure your safety. We even, we even screened the eating utensils and serving trays as you requested. This didn't seem to reassure the mouth. When were you hired, boy? <laughs> uh, last, last week, sir. I'm a temporary hire for the banquet. The mouth's eyes narrowed at this. Why is an absent-minded temporary hire serving me? He inquired. Surely Dimitri has a more experienced server on his staff. I, uh, I hesitated. I knew I had rehearsed a response to something like this, but my mind was blank. I couldn't remember the last time I had taken a breath. What's going on? Another voice asked. I turned. It was Foresight. I immediately turned back to the mouth. I'd rather meet his harsh glare than be found out by Foresight. Sir, the chief addressed the mouth. I assure you this boar is harmless. Let him do his job. Lord Steelheart will be calling in at any moment. <laughs> I'd like an answer to my question, the mouth urged. Why are you serving this table, boy? For a guy called the mouth, his eyes were much more striking. His glare could melt butter or something more impressive who cares about metaphors right now i thought answer his question <laughs> calamity the mouth cursed answer me now or i'm an epic sir 
I blurted. The, the, the only one on the staff. <laughs> D- Dimitri thought you'd be more comfortable with me. I didn't know where the answer came from. It wasn't my rehearsed response, that's for sure. But the mouth's anger seemed to deflate at this. An epic waiter? The mouth asked. <laughs> What's your ability? Uh, balance, sir, I replied. I have really good balance, but specifically with my hands. The mouth smirked in amusement. With your hands, hmm? He mused. What do they call you? Uh, I hesitated. They call me hands. They call me hands. Hands? The mouth asked with a chuckle. That's it? I couldn't believe I was just asked that by a guy named the mouth. Yes, sir, I replied. The mouth tittered some more at this. Well, he began. I can see why you were hesitant to reveal this. Leave the soup and get out of your hands, and don't ever speak to me again. Yes, sir, I said with great relief. I placed the bowl before him, quickly moved to foresight, placed the last bowl before him, and hurried down the steps off the platform. I moved so quickly that I completely forgot how much I dreaded serving foresight all week. Then static cracked in my ear. Sparks! Tia Tia cursed. That was close. Good work, though. Thanks, I replied before remembering I wasn't supposed to reply. (laughs) When I reached the back of the room near the swinging kitchen doors, I looked back to the high table, just as the mouth slipped a spoonful of soup into his namesake. And I smiled. (laughs) A moment later, a screen began to lower from the ceiling behind behind the high table. All right, here we go, Tia said. When the screen was fully lowered, it began flickering and crackling with static. Chatter in the room died down, and the chief stood from his seat. Everyone, please rise. Our Lord Emperor Steelheart will now join us live to share a brief address (laughs) of appreciation for another successful year. Everyone in the room rose and stood at attention. My eyes darted back and forth between the screen and the mouth in anticipation. The static crackled on the screen for a few more moments before, finally, a face appeared. However, it was not the face they all expected. (laughs) Good evening, Prof said. The room instantly erupted in anger. On this night, he continued over the din, a night on which you celebrate another year of service to a hostile and unloving lord, I want to deliver a reminder. Up at the high table, the chief waved at a nearby guard, gesturing to cut the feed. You believe that by serving him and his kind, who claim to be invincible and all-powerful, that you too will be safe. I am here to remind you that this is not true. For no matter how powerful they are, or how safe you feel, one day you will all have to reckon with the consequences of your choices. As if on cue, a shatter erupted from the head table. The mouth had knocked over his wine glass and was now grasping at his throat. He coughed and sputtered. He tried to reach for the glass of water before him, but he convulsed and knocked it over. His mouth began foaming. He reached out to those around him for help, but they recoiled. The rest of the room watched on in horror. While his coughing turned more into gagging, the mouth began picking up his utensils off the table, inspecting them briefly and then throwing them away. I knew what he was doing, but the room swelled with whispers of confusion. When he was through with the utensils, he turned to his soup. He paused, sputtered, and plunged a hand into it. 
When he pulled his hand out, he held up the agent of his demise. His eyes seemed to bulge from his head as he looked at it. It was a silver dollar. Silver. <laughs> a fitting weakness for such a man. The coin had allowed poison in the soup to work its way through his system. The mouth's, the mouth's coughing stopped as he gazed at the coin. For a moment, the room was completely silent. Then, after a quick convulsion, a stream of blood erupted from the mouth, showering the enforcers at the tables below him. Although across the room, I shielded myself reflexively. The room broke out in a panic. Diners jumped away from their tables, as if trying to get as far away as they could from their soup bowls. Up on the large screen, Prof's head disappeared and was replaced by Steelheart. He looked angry and confused. Calamity, have you figured it out yet? He asked someone off screen. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm starting to see them, but... Sparks, what's going on there? My lord! The mouth gasped in agony. Then he purged one last stream of blood onto the screen bearing the face of his lord and fell to the ground. Target down, I said. Roger that, Tia replied. Now get out of there. Up on the screen, now dripping with the mouth's blood, Steelheart watched the chaotic scene gravely. After a few stoic moments, he said, Turn it off. And the screen went dark. <laughs> the end. From episode 15, Marcus writes The Thing, based on the film written by Bill Lancaster and directed by John Carpenter. Why did the lights have to go out? Christ, there had been three men with me in that room. Palmer, Childs, Norris. Brothers formed in this frozen over hell. We know that it needs to be alone to consume one of us, to devour our core and wear our flesh as its morbid marionette. Fuchs told us that much before he took his own life. But did it need the space, or just need us not to see? The three men had been in that room with me, and when the lights went out, they may as well have died. I run down the hall with their screams behind me. They want us to stick together, but the trust is gone. The only part of me that's left to them is a red trail of blood I leave behind. It's coming from my side, but I don't look down to see the extent of the damage. It doesn't matter, really. A part of me knew I was dead since the moment those Swedes showed up hunting that damn dog. <laughs> so, why fight it? Well, because I've seen what it's capable of. I saw its tentacles burst out of that Swede's chest when Blair made the incision. I saw him choke on his own blood as the creature forced its way down his throat. That won't be me. Mac, please! We have to stay in sight! Childs. He was the one who wrote me into this expedition in the first place. He said it was a chance to get away from the world. Now I expect he's about to set me ablaze if he catches up with me. The worst part is, I won't know if it's him doing it, or it. He could look so close to us. I make my way to the kitchen, to the heavy steel door of the freezer. Not where I thought I'd make a last stand, but at this point it's the best option. Gary had blown the heating in an attempt to finish it, when it wore Nalls' face. His stumble on the roller skates had tipped us off. Or maybe it was just fear that caused Nalls to fumble. Maybe we had killed him. I push the thought aside as my hand catches the door handle. <laughs> Putting weight on the door, even just enough to open it, shows me how bad of a condition I'm really in. The relief of not carrying myself feels too good. I have to struggle to keep going. But the freezer is the most secure location in the base, and with the heating out and the power fluctuating, the cold inside won't be long worse than the cold outside. We'd always made fun of the government for putting a walk-in freezer in an Antarctic base. <laughs> Guess it was made in some senator's home state. 
Now it might save my life. With a final exertion, I sealed the door by knocking over a metal shelf in front of it. Meat spills on the floor, and when I slump down to join it, I realize I'm not in much better shape. I crawl to a spot where I can see through the window. They'll no doubt find me soon. It will no doubt find me soon. I close my eyes, and in that moment I'm back in 75. The memory consumes me in an instant, unrelenting as a hurricane and just as loud. I'm back in the U.S., home for the first time since my last deployment. Every sight on the streets of New York causes me to jump. I don't know whether to run or attack. The shouts are in English. The smells aren't wet dirt. The people move about unarmed. Something grabs my leg and I spin, then I'm ripped away from the memory by the sound of dogs barking. Suddenly I'm in the freezer at the end of my life. I never knew what it would feel like to meet death, even though I'd seen, sent enough men to their own. I didn't expect the past to feel so real and revisiting. I know it comes next, and it's a memory I don't care to dwell on. I force myself to stay in the present. I keep my right hand firm on the gap in my side, but grab my pistol in my left. I won't be much of a shot in this state, but Fuchs had shown that it didn't matter with the right target. The barking stops, and the silence is worse than anything I could imagine. Did Clark put the dogs down? Did he let them free? This had started with that husky. If our dogs made it far enough, that could be the end. Something grabs my leg, and I spin. No, I won't go back to that. In my final moments, let me leave my shame in the past. Something grabs my leg, and I spin. No! A face appears in the freezer window, and I'm spared New York for a time. The memory impossible to shake off on my own. It's Childs, but I hear Palmer's voice. Just burn the bastard. It's not Mac. Mac wouldn't have run. He wanted to keep us together. Childs ignores him and tries the handle. I find the trigger of my gun, but don't raise it, partly not to threaten Childs till I know more, and partly because I'm not sure I even had the strength to level the weapon. You got yourself stuck pretty well in there, Mac. He's smiling. But is that his smile? I don't want to kill you, Childs. I'm not sure if my own voice can carry through the door. It sounds distant to my ears. Mac, I don't want to let you die. You're bleeding. Let me help. How do I know it's you? I say, coughing. My chin is wet. We're in that room together. You know it needs us to get needs to get us alone, friend. Well, it took you an awful long to find long time to find me. We both know it took binnings faster than something grabs my leg and I spin. A little girl is hugging my legs in New York, her face covered in a smile that's missing a few teeth. The slowed reactions that would have killed me back in my deployment save her life. She looks up at me and cries, Daddy, Daddy! I don't have time to respond before her mother drags her away and they disappear into the New York crowds. No! I shout, pushing myself back. I return to the freezer, but the girl's face still follows me. Outside, Childs is banging on the door. Mac, you need to stay awake. We're coming for you. The concern in his voice seems real, but the way he's banging on the door is more aggressive than anything I've ever seen from Childs. When Palmer joins him, I'm sure they aren't real. I've never seen the stoner move so hard in his life. I think <laughs> back to that little girl in New York. She wasn't mine, and I'd never seen her again. But she could have been my daughter. Her face haunts me. Just a confused little girl in a big city, thinking for a moment I was her father. I don't revisit that memory often. It reminds me of the child I gave up during the war, the one I never saw. The daughter who would never see my face. In that moment, I make my choice. The same choice Fuchs made last night. He was always smarter than me. No wonder he came to it first. The only way to know it won't get me is to end my life on my own terms. I may have never seen my child, but at least this way I can ensure that the first time she sees my face isn't when it's being worn by some monster.
It's funny now, thinking that child said I could come here and get away from the world. Now, the fate of it all is in this place. I close my eyes, but don't drift back to that day in New York. I've come to terms with that memory, and my decision after all these years. I know now why the lights went out, to make me face this, to bring me peace. I raise my left arm and open my eyes to steady the shot. But there is no gun. There is no hand. All I see are my beautiful appendages expanding in the open air. I've finished assimilating the memories. The worst conflict of MacReady has been resolved, and I'm now free of his thoughts. I'm free to be myself again. The conversations had started as a mean, or the conversions had started as a means of survival. But now I know that there is so much more I can do for these people. Each one I've consumed has had so much torment. I put an end to that. Elevated them to something more. At first, I only wanted to get home, but now I see that after a hundred thousand years, that can wait, if only to give this world peace. Outside the freezer, the ones called Childs and Palmer run at the revealing of my true form. No matter. I'll find them eventually. <laughs> the lights will go out, and we will become one. The end! <laughs> From episode 16, Eric writes The Big Bang Theory, based on the television show created by Chuck Lorre and Bill Prady. What happens when nerds fall in love With objects shaped like pennies that seem super dumb Test these hypotheses and you'll see That your expensive education falls to cheap infatuation All your brainy repartee becomes a distant memory Your roommate and your friends Will make some pop culture references <laughs> Darth Vader Cthulhu Set phasers Pikachu, a bazinga, a bazinga, a bazinga, a bazinga, a bazinga. <laughs> well, you already got all the points. All right, let's hear the script anyway. <laughs> Interior, Caltech, Sheldon's office, day. Sheldon is sitting alone at his desk, reading a book titled The Ethics of Human Cloning. <laughs> Suddenly, the door bursts open and Leonard slinks inside. He's smiling and out of breath. I did it! I actually did it! Oh, Leonard, you finally finished your Minecraft model of Hogwarts? Leonard crosses to the desk. No, that's a work in progress. Progress has such a loose definition these days. Well, you've piqued my interest. Sheldon sets the book down on the desk. Leonard sits across from him. You know those two tickets from Comic-Con I managed to score from Android's dungeon after the employee accidentally scalded my face with hot nacho cheese? Who could forget Cheesergate? <laughs> yes, well, Comic-Con starts tomorrow, and I need to ask someone to go with me. I've already told you I'm not interested. A convention center filled with thousands of sweaty nerds dressed up in terrible costumes like there was a garage sale at Skywalker Ranch isn't my kind of party. No, Sheldon, I already knew that. That's why, once the bandages had been removed, I asked someone else. <laughs> That's what I wanted to tell you. Who did you ask? You didn't. Leonard nods his head vigorously. Uh, Penny, and she said yes? She's even dressing up. I must say, I expected more from Penny. It took me all day to pluck up the courage to ask her. That's too bad. And to think, you could have used that time to finish building Gryffindor Tower. Bazinga! <laughs> oh, I, I just remembered. I have to go pick up my costume. Leonard stands and crosses back towards the door. 
Oh no, you too. Leonard pauses and turns back to Sheldon. It's okay. Penny and I are going for the classic cross-play Star Trek The Original Series. Let me guess. You're Captain Kirk and Penny is Orion, slave girl, in need of some heroism. <laughs> I'll be Mr. Spock for your information, and I didn't ask Penny what she was going to be because as soon as I said Star Trek, her face lit up and she told me she already knew exactly what to do. I'm telling you, Sheldon, she's the one. Well, it appears our <laughs> friend across the hall has a geeky side we never knew. And hopefully we'll get to know that side much better tomorrow. But first, I need to be fitted for a pair of pointy ears. <laughs> Leonard gives Sheldon the Vulcan salute, then exits. Fade out. Fade in, too. Interior, Leonard and Sheldon's apartment the next day. Leonard is nervously pacing back and forth. He is dressed in the blue Starfleet uniform and pointy ears of Mr. Spock, though he is still wearing his glasses. Sheldon enters from the bedroom, immediately freezes upon seeing Leonard, and rolls his eyes, then walks to the kitchen. I was hoping to miss this portion of the day. <laughs> Leonard jumps in surprise at Sheldon's voice. Oh, good morning. We're learning as soon as... We're leaving as soon as Penny is done putting on her costume. I can barely contain myself. There is a sharp knock at the door. There she is! Leonard lunges for the door and opens it with a big smile on his face. Raj and Howard are standing in the doorway, holding board games. Leonard's fa smile fades. Howard speaks. We're happy to see you too, Mr. Spock. <laughs> they push past Leonard and enter the apartment. Raj points at Leonard's outfit. All dressed for Comic-Con, Leonard? <laughs> Sheldon laughs. No, that's just the uniform of a grown man about to be in way over his head. Leonard closes the door. What are you two doing here? Sheldon invited Cooper, Polly, and I over for a day of board games. We're going to settle the ever-living sheep out of Catan. <laughs> oh, I hope you guys aren't mad that I didn't ask any of you to come with me to Comic-Con. Why would we be mad? There's nothing we would enjoy at Comic-Con. Yeah. Why would we want to go to a full cast reunion of Firefly? <laughs> or, a talk, or a talk from Neil deGrasse Tyson debunking the theoretical mechanics of time travel from Back to the Future series? Or George R.R. R. Martin's annual Game of Thrones spoiler luncheon wherein he bakes the name of the next character to be killed off in the show into a gigantic pie. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I promise not to have any fun. Good. <laughs> There's a knock at the door. Leonard jumps. That's Penny. No kidding. Who did she say she's dressing up as? Rainbow Bright? Chitara? Apparently, she's chosen her favorite character from Star Trek original series. Orion, slave girl? Bazinga. <laughs> Let's find out. Leonard throws open the door. It's Penny. She enters wearing the extravagant dress and over-the-top hairdo and face paint of Queen Amidala from Star Wars Episode <laughs> 1, The Phantom Menace. All four men groan loudly. Mm. Penny looks suddenly self-conscious. What is it? Nothing. You look great. Penny, very accurate. Leonard, what are you talking about? She's clearly dressed in a Star Wars costume. Worse, a Star Wars prequel. Oh no, I got it wrong? D Don't... Don't listen to them. Star Wars, Star Trek, it's pretty much the same. <laughs> what? <laughs> we should go. Leonard starts ushering Penny out the door. Bye, guys. We'll be back Sunday. Bye. Penny and Leonard exit and shut the door behind them. Oh, poor Penny. She's in for a rough weekend. Those nerds are going to eat her alive. Fade out. Act break. 
This is a commercial, uh, commercial. It's over. Fade in two. Interior. Leonard and Sheldon's apartment. Later. Sorry. In, I'm starting over. Interior. Leonard and Sheldon's apartment. Later. The couch and chair have been pushed aside, and the kitchen table has been placed in the center of the living room. Sheldon, Howard, and Raj are seated around the table and are all helping to neatly stack the cardboard hexes and wooden pieces from the game of Settlers of Catan that they just completed. Now that we've warmed up from that childishly simple game of Catan, I hope you all came prepared to play a real game. A real game? Not Risk again. Nobody actually likes Risk, Sheldon. <laughs> Wolowitz is right. If you try to pull that Australia move again, I will turn to violence. Risk? <laughs> really? You think I invited you over to play a game about mere world domination? Sheldon laughs to himself in a <laughs> megalomaniacal sort of way. No, no, no. I have my eyes on a bigger prize. How does an entire galaxy sound? Sheldon lifts a gigantic box from his lap and drops it with a thud onto the table. The art on the box features spaceships, snake people, and a character with the head of a lion. I give you Twilight Imperium. (laughs) You monster. (laughs) It is the longest game of all time. People have died trying to get through it. I don't think I can stay, Sheldon. I have an appointment, like, with a doctor. (laughs) Howard stands to leave. He rushes for the door. Not so fast, Wallowitz. Sheldon pulls out his phone, hits the screen, and a loud locking noise is heard. Howard reaches the door and finds that he can't escape. He turns back to Sheldon, trapped. How? I installed a Bluetooth-enabled, Arduino-powered actuator, Deadbolt. The only way to open it now is through the phone or an old-fashioned key. You're a sick man, Sheldon. No, it's okay. Howard, it could be fun. Listen to Raj, Howard. We'll just play one game. Once I have destroyed you and taken my place as Emperor of the Galaxy, you will have my permission to leave. Bazinga. Just one game? (laughs) Come on, Howard. Let's play. It can't be any worse than the day Penny is having right now. Fade out. (laughs) Cut to. Interior. Comic-Con hallway. Day. About a half dozen nerds, many wearing various superhero and video game character costumes, are milling about. Leonard and Penny enter. Penny looks amazed, excited at every costume she sees. She's just happy to be there. Leonard looks like he's, ha- he's trying not to be seen with Penny. I'm having such a great day. I had no idea so many people would want to take their pictures with me. Yeah, that <laughs> sure is perplexing. I thought I had really screwed up by wearing this costume, but everyone here loves it. Well, don't get too excited, Penny. There are a lot of people here, and you may find that not everyone is a real big fan of royalty. Oh, look! What a great Spider-Man! That's Deadpool. Penny doesn't hear. She rushes off to go take a picture with Deadpool, then skips back. She then notices something's off with Leonard. Oh, I'm sorry, Leonard. Did you want to get your picture taken with Spider-Man? No, because that's not Spider-Man. Uh, you haven't taken any pictures at all today. Are you not proud of your elf costume? Leonard bites his lip. Well, I think it's a great elf costume. Here, I want to take a picture with you. Penny takes out her phone and starts posing for a selfie with Leonard, who resists and squirms out of the shot. Penny, no. Nobody wants to take their picture with me. I mean, look at me. I've seen 15 other Spocks since we've been here, and I'm the worst-looking one. But... I, 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 nobody I, has so much netchened me. They notice Queen Amidala. They take pictures with Queen Amidala, but not Spock. <laughs> I thought we were in the middle of a World Series of Nerdum. These are supposed to be my people. It's... Like, the world doesn't even make sense anymore. Penny just smiles and scoots closer to Leonard and snaps a picture. Stop. 
Penny makes a goofy face and takes another picture, then another. Penny, stop. Penny keeps taking pictures, and soon Leonard is laughing outright. She gestures over to a group of people dressed as Power Rangers, beckoning them over. Hey! Hey, Cran people, come here! (laughs) The Power Rangers crowd in with Leonard and Penny, pose for a couple shots, then break formation. The Pink Ranger speaks. I like your Spock. Thanks. The Power Rangers exit. Leonard now has a huge smile on his face. See? This is fun! Thanks, Penny. Come on, let's go watch J.R.R. Tolkien eat this giant pie. (laughs) No, it's George R.R. Yeah, let's go. Fade out to another act break. Fade in to interior, Leonard and Sheldon's apartment, night. The place is a mess. Chinese delivery containers are strewn about. Furniture has been knocked over. Empty (laughs) two-liter soda bottles are lying everywhere. Sheldon, Howard, and Raj are still sitting around the table. Howard and Raj look like they haven't slept in days, with dark bags under their eyes. Raj's hair is all tangled and his clothes are covered in food stains. Howard is moist. (laughs) Sheldon, Howard, and Raj are... Oh, sorry, I read that already. (laughs) Sheldon, by contrast, is looking just fine. Howard moves some pieces on the board, then sits back, exhausted. Howard... What in the galaxy are you doing? By willfully vacating medical wrecks, you lose the single most politically important strategical placed system in the game. And with my next turn, you're basically handing me the victory. Good. It's yours. Let me die. (laughs) I will not accept victory under these conditions. This is Mechatol Rex we're talking about. You can't just hand me the galaxy like this. For the love of all the gods, we've been playing this game for 48 hours straight. Let it end. Let it all end. Just take it. Please, Sheldon. You've, you've been putting it off for days. It's yours. See? Look. Look at all these little worlds. They're yours. Isn't that enough? Total domination or nothing. <laughs> Howard and Raj break down and start bawling, holding each other for comfort. Cut to interior apartment landing, night. Leonard and Penny slowly climb the stairs. They are back in civilian attire, their costumes stashed into the duffel bags they are carrying. They reach the top step and hesitate for a moment. Well, Penny, I had a really fantastic weekend. Thanks for tagging along. Anytime. We should try to go again next year. Oh, maybe you'll get scalded with nacho cheese again. (laughs) Here's to lightning striking twice. (laughs) They both laugh and then lapse into an awkward silence. Anyway, thank you for cheering me up and showing me that it's more about than it's more about than just crossplay. And thank you for taking so many pictures of me and all those monks. <laughs> monks? Penny, those were Jedi. Is that like a Jehovah's Witness? <laughs> Leonard laughs. Close enough. Penny leans in and gives Leonard a kiss on the cheek. Thanks for a great weekend. Leonard is stunned. Penny turns, unlocks her apartment door, steps inside, and shuts the door behind her. After a few moments, Leonard also turns and unlocks his own door. Cut to. Interior. Leonard and Sheldon's apartment. Night. The door opens and Leonard enters. Howard and Raj spin in their seats, see that their portal to freedom has been opened, and spring to their feet. Hold that door! You two are still here? Howard and Raj sprint over to the door and exit without another word. Leonard watches them go, then shuts the door behind them. He turns to Sheldon with a curious look on his face. Congratulations, you just ruined my perfect game. Leonard crosses to the table, sits down, and looks at the board. You actually convinced them to play this? Oh yes, they were quite a 
Captive audience. <laughs> Sheldon smiles and holds for laughter. Leonard doesn't laugh. Bazinga. <laughs> well, not that you care, but Comic-Con was fabulous this year. What name did they find in George R.R. R. Martin's spoiler pie? Moon Boy. <gasps> well, that's a bit of a letdown. Did Penny get eaten alive by avid, savage trekkers? Surprisingly, no. She was a hit. I don't think there was a single person at the convention who didn't take a selfie with her. It just goes to show you that no matter how much you hate something, terrible prequels included, there will always be thousands of people who love it. Perhaps, but statistically speaking, there are at least a thousand idiots for every person like you or I. I suppose. But it makes you realize that everyone's entitled to their own opinion, and the best thing that you can do is just to let them enjoy it. Why ruin the fun? Tell that to Kuthru Polly and Wallowitz. <laughs> Maybe hating this game is a valid opinion? No, they clearly miss the intricacies and the nuance, the multifaceted strategy, and the excitement of never playing the same game twice. If they missed all of that, then they don't deserve to have an opinion. Ah, well, have fun ruling the galaxy by yourself from now on, Sheldon. Leonard gets up, crosses to his room, and shuts the door behind him. Sheldon stares down at the game for a moment, then speaks to it. We don't need them, do we? <laughs> Fade out. The end. <laughs> From episode 17, Andrew writes Frasier, based on the series created by David Angel, Peter Casey, and David Lee. Dr. Crane, we'll see you now. It's Frasier. Descending on Seattle in style. Calling Frasier. Psychiatric help on the top. Yes, it's Frasier. Gonna take you out on the town. Been in Boston for a while, brother. Wanna get down? Frasier. Got his dad crashing his digs. You know Frasier. Getting into all kinds of things. Time for Frasier. With Martin, Daphne, Niles, and Ross. And Eddie, of course. Don't forget that cute dog. Frasier. Oh, do you know that the character's name is Frasier? <laughs> what a coincidence! Oh, oh my god. Uh, I'm glad you guys yeah. like that. <laughs> I, not only does it perfectly represent Frasier, it perfectly represents you. <laughs> oh, Alright, let's, let's do it. Oh, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Alright. <coughs> Episode title Eddie Crane's Day Off. <laughs> <laughs> Interior, KACL radio station, day. Our hero, Fraser Crane, is in the studio, on air with a patient. Roz listens to their conversation from the booth. So, Gordon, tell me more about this. This, uh, what was it again? Not it. He. His name was Billy. Singing Billy, the big mouth bass. Of course, of course, of course. What was it about Billy, Gordon? What did he mean to you? Well, you know... She gave him to me. Ah, uh, yes, Delilah. Yes, he was the last birthday gift she gave me before... B before... Before she left you? Yes. So how did Singing Billy, a gift from your ex-wife, cause the disarrangement with your sister, Nora? She sold him at a rummage sale after Delilah moved out. Did you tell her how this made you feel? In a way. In what way? I screamed at her for several hours. <laughs> I see, Gordon. Uh, those close to us don't always understand what it is or isn't important to us. We have to open up to them, and then we have to listen to them in return. Openness and communication are key to the best relationships. 
Ross signals Fraser to wrap it up. And that's our time, Gordon. I'm very sorry about Billy. Thank you, Dr. Crane. You're most welcome. Thank you for calling. And now, a word from our sponsor, O'Malley's Bait and Tackle. <laughs> Ross hits a few buttons on the board. And we're out. 90 seconds. Bait and Tackle? Really, Ross? How was I supposed to know the schlub was pointing, pinning it on the long last trout? If you want a psychic screen... To call. If you want a psychic to screen your calls, fire me and hire Daphne instead. <laughs> oh my. Now that would be a true disaster. Yeah, speaking of which, how are things going with you and Justine? Oh, dreadful. You were right. We don't have anything in common. For our first date, I recommended the Chamber Orchestra, but she insisted on going to Discovery Park for a run. Ha! <laughs> Forget the orchestra. I'd pay to see that. She's just so gorgeous. We're going out again tonight at Maxwell's, but I fear this might be the end of us. Well, if you go for a run afterward, remember to pace yourself, or it might be the end of you. (laughs) Cut to title card. Niles need Daphne. Interior, Fraser's living room, night. Fraser enters his apartment and is immediately confronted by Daphne. Oh, thank God you're here. We have a bit of a situation. What is it? (laughs) Your father is upset. What else is new? No, no, it's about Eddie. He's gone. We can't find him. Well, excellent. Certainly the carpet will start smelling better. Frasier. (laughs) Fine, fine, fine. Where's Dad? Eddie? On the balcony. He's been calling out for Eddie for over an hour. Dad, I'm home. Martin enters from the balcony. Did you find Eddie? No. Then we're wasting my time. Dad, he's not going to hear you. We're 20 stories up. Then go 20 stories down and get looking for him. I'm sure as hell can't. Well, I can't either. I have a date. With that Ronnie woman? You know, I don't see it going with you and her. Can't you find someone a tid more stationary? (laughs) (laughs) Niles enters through the front door. I know, I know what you're going to say. Here for the third time this week... But I just keep borrowing the sugar, and Maris just keeps eating all of it. (laughs) Oh, thank God you're here. We need you. You need me? Daphne (laughs) needs Niles? Yes, Eddie's gone. Oh. Niles? I mean, oh oh my goodness. (laughs) We must find him. Daphne smirks and shakes her head. Best of luck. I have to get ready for my date. Ah, I see your priorities. Taking out some woman you just met rather than saving a small, helpless creature. (laughs) Little brother, if you need saving, just call and run and I'll be there. (laughs) Cut to title card, The Phantom Martin. (laughs) Interior, upscale restaurant, night. Fraser is sitting at a small table with Justine, an athletic woman in her late 30s. They both seem pretty bored. So you go hiking every weekend. Almost every weekend. Sometimes my soccer league schedules matches on the weekend, so I can't. Or there's a 5K or a marathon in town. Frazier is now screaming on the inside. Lovely! Always on the move, aren't you? Thank you for stopping to have dinner with me. I promise not to run off. They awkwardly Uh. chuckle and take a sip of wine simultaneously. So, I... Don't recall asking, do you have any pets? No, well, no. Do you? (laughs) Yes, I I have a small dog named Roscoe. He's a black miniature schnauzer. I've had him for years. He's kind of the love of my life. Fraser perks up at this. 
Has he ever run away? He leans, leans in and crosses his hands to show that he's listening very closely. Um, yes. He did once. He, he disappeared for a whole night. I didn't sleep a wink, and I searched half the city before I found him. Nearly scared me to death. How dreadful. Fraser has that look in his eye as he says this, that kind of look that says a plan has been hatched. He pauses and raises a hand to cup his ear. Hold on. I think I hear something. I I don't hear anything. Yes, I believe my phone is vibrating. His phone isn't vibrating. (laughs) He retrieves it anyway and looks at it. Oh, it's my father. Oh, dear. He is. He wouldn't call unless this was an emergency. May may I just take this? Uh, Of course. Thank you. He answers, note quotations, the call. Dad, what is it? No, Eddie, missing. Oh, absolutely, I'm on my way. He ends the call. Uh, you have, must have overheard, my dog, Eddie, is he's missing. I thought you said you didn't have a dog. I have to find him. <laughs> Commercial break. <laughs> we come back. Title card, The Difference Between Life and Death. Interior, Fraser's living room, night. Fraser bursts through the door, Justine in tow. Uh, we came as soon as we could. Niles is reclined on the sofa with a large bandage adhered to his forehead. I don't need your saving. My God, what happened? Martin is seated nearby on his Burka lounger. Mr. Hero here almost scooped up the wrong dog. What? Daphne enters from the kitchen with an ice pack. It was an honest mistake. The dog looked like Eddie. It was a German shepherd. It was dark out. (laughs) Daphne carefully places the ice pack on Niles' head. He winces and whimpers in pain. The owner cracked him over the head with an umbrella. Nearly knocked him out. Must have been quite an arm. Yes, especially for an 80-year-old woman. (laughs) She was a stout 60 at most. Well, (laughs) do not fret, brother. I will pick up where you left off. I'll find little Eddie and bring him home safe and sound. Oh, no, you don't. Niles jumps up, takes a step towards Fraser, and falls to the floor. Daphne and Justine move to help him, but he waves them away as he attempts to stand again. Niles, you are in no shape for this search. You couldn't identify Eddie when you were lucid. You won't be able to now. And why do you think... You, what, and why do you care all of a sudden? Because Eddie is like family to me. <laughs> <laughs> Only like family. Niles, please don't be selfish. Every moment we waste here could be the difference between life and death for Eddie. Justine, shall we go? Absolutely. Fraser and Justine go for the exit. Niles rises quickly. Ah, ah, ah. I don't think so. And immediately begins to collapse before Daphne dives in to stabilize him. Niles tenses at her touch and conspicuously steals glances at her hands on him. I think it's time to call it a night. Cut to title card. What kind of night has it been? (laughs) Interior Cafe Nervosa Day. Fraser sits at a table holding a newspaper aloft before him, which hides his face. He appears to be reading until he begins to snore. The paper slowly droops, revealing a fully upright but fully asleep Fraser. (laughs) Taking a break, hmm? Fraser wakes with a snort. What? I thought... Each and every moment could mean life or death for dear, helpless little Eddie. I was out all night looking for dear, helpless little Eddie. (laughs) What's your excuse? A tap on the head from an old woman? Niles wipes down the seat across from Fraser with his handkerchief and sits. You can slight me all you want, Fraser, but don't play dumb. Your motivations are no nobler than mine. Oh? Admit it. You're out to be the hero again in order to win the favor of your latest fling. Oh, what about you, Niles? Whose favor do you intend to win? Well, I... Is it Maris's? She doesn't seem to be around. 
She happens to have a very she she happens to have a very important diabetes test today, and I'm worried sick about it. Don't change the subject. Okay. Perhaps I love this little mongrel. Well, perhaps I do too. Perhaps I do more. Perhaps you do not. Roz enters as the boys bicker. Whoa, now, cream boys, let's take it down a few notches. He started it. Did not. They both turn away from one another, cross their arms, and pout. <laughs> Whatever, I'm not getting involved. I just spotted you here and wanted to tell you that I saw the damnedest thing outside. There was this adorable dog at the bus stop down the street, and all along, sitting patiently, like he was waiting for the bus or something. Thrilling, Roz. Really. Maybe I'll read about it in tomorrow's paper. Easy, smartass. I brought it up because it's weird. The dog looked a lot like Eddie. Fraser and Niles both react with a start and turn to look out the window behind them. Is it him? I don't know. They both jump up, blow past Roz, and run to the door. Exterior, bus stop, continuous. Eddie sits calmly on the sidewalk amongst a small group of commuters. No one seems to find this strange. A city bus pulls up to the curb. Also, whenever we see Eddie, the Joel Cool song from Peanuts cartoons plays on the soundtrack. <laughs> Exterior, sidewalk, continuous. Niles bursts out of the cafe door first, stops, and peers down the street to get a better look. Fraser is quick to follow, but doesn't stop. He checks Niles, who yelps in surprise, and keeps running. Intercut. Commuters file onto the bus. Eddie patiently awaits his turn. Fraser wheezes as he runs, dipping and dodging around pedestrians with difficulty. <laughs> Niles closes in on him, even though he runs like a Nancy. <laughs> Two more commuters step onto the bus. Eddie is up next. Fraser and Niles are now neck and neck, each trying to cut the other off. I love him more. No, you don't. <laughs> Eddie stands at the foot of the stairs onto the bus. The bus driver sees him and smiles. Eddie, my man, get your tail in here. <laughs> Eddie barks happily and jumps up the stairs. Frazier and Niles begin to wave their arms to catch the driver's attention. No, 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 no! Stop! The bus pulls away moments before Frazier and Niles reach the curb. They continue to call after it, but it continues down the street. Frazier doubles over in, exha in exhaustion. Niles watches the bus go as he catches his breath. How did he pay the fare? <laughs> Commercial break. <laughs> Title card. The Earth's Natural Energy Fields. Interior. Fraser's living room. Night. Fraser staggers into the apartment after a long day and night and day before that. <laughs> the room is dark, but for the light of a few flickering candles. Daphne is seated on the couch with Martin with a hand on his shoulder. Both have their eyes closed. I was wondering when it would come to this. Daphne responds without moving or opening her eyes. Fraser, good. You're home. Do I need to ask what you're doing? Well, we haven't had any luck searching. We're getting kind of desperate here. Martin, please. We don't want to project any desperation or negativity. So what is it you're doing? Astral projection. <laughs> of a sort... We're attempting to send Eddie a message of love and positivity through the Earth's natural energy fields. The more the merrier, son. Yes, join us, Fraser. The more people we have, the more powerful the message. I think I'll pass. This seems more than just a bit psychic. <laughs> Do you have any other ideas? I just don't see the point. It's not like it'll hurt anything. Only my reputation. No one's gonna know. Just sit down. No. Why? Because it's stupid. The room goes quiet for a moment. Martin turns away from Fraser, who lumbers into the kitchen. 
Interior, Fraser's kitchen, continuous. Fraser goes to the cupboard, grabs a glass, and then walks over to the refrigerator to begin filling his glass from the water dispenser. He sighs. A moment later, Daphne enters. Hey, you know, it's fine that you don't want to help us, but you didn't have to yell at your father. I saw Eddie today, Daph. You did? Yes, Niles and I tried to catch him, but he got on the bus and rode away. <laughs> a bus? Yes. How'd he pay the fare? I don't know. The point is, he has the ability to come home, but he hasn't. <laughs> Maybe he just doesn't know the bus routes well enough. Please. <laughs> Whatever. The only thing I know is that your father is worried, worried sick about that little dog, and you're not being very helpful. Not being very... I spent all night looking for him. With your girlfriend. So? So, do you care more about Eddie or your penis? I don't care this. <laughs> Fraser slams his water glass on the counter and storms out of the kitchen. Interior Fraser's living room continuous. Fraser makes straight for the front door. Martin is still on the couch. Where are you going? Out. Just out. To look for Eddie? No, I'm through with that dog. If I ever see him again, I'm going to... Gonna what? Fraser throws open the door and freezes. He stares down at the floor outside the door where Eddie is sitting, looking up at him with his head cocked. Fraser, what are you going to do? Fraser takes a beat, glancing back and forth between Eddie and inside. Then, he bends down, scoops Eddie up, and makes to leave. I'm going to jump for joy! Gotta run! Run? The front door closes. Daphne enters, and Martin turns to address her. Does Fraser run? <laughs> Cut to. Title card. No. <laughs> Interior. Fraser's car. Night. Fraser looks ahead at the road through the slow strokes of his windshield wipers. He gestures with his cell phone while rehearsing a call to Justine. Justine, you'll never guess who I found on the way home tonight. Uh, no, no, no. I'm not missing jazz pianist Chester Buckingham, but a good guess. He chuckles to himself. <laughs> no, of course. I'm talking about my dog, Eddie. I can't wait for you to meet him. Perhaps he and your dog, Rufus, or whatever, can be friends. <laughs> <laughs> Fraser smiles and looks into the rearview mirror at Eddie, who sits in the center of the back seat. Eddie looks directly at Fraser through the mirror. Fraser's smile fades. What? You don't approve? Eddie's expression doesn't change. I stayed up all night last night looking for you. I think you can at least oblige me this. Eddie's expression doesn't change. It's just for the night. You'll, you'll see Dad in the morning. Eddie's expression doesn't change. How about this? On the way home tomorrow, we'll stop by PetSmart, and I'll buy you the biggest chew bone in the store. Eddie's expression doesn't change. Oh, come on, please. I'll throw in a pack of milk bones. Eddie's expression... Doesn't change. <laughs> Fraser turns away from him and stares back at the road ahead. After a moment, he hits the turn signal and rounds a corner. Cut to title card: the rule of threes. <laughs> Interior: Fraser's living room, night. Daphne is seated on a sofa between Niles and Martin, a hand on each man's nearest shoulder. All have their eyes closed until Niles steals a quick peek at Daphne's hand on his shoulder. Then he closes his eyes again and lets out a deep, satisfied sigh. <laughs> Fraser enters through the front door. He sees the trio on the couch and smirks. Hello, all. All three slump at his greeting. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Fraser holds the door open and turns to the hallway. You going to come in? Eddie trots up to the threshold. The jingle of his collar prompts the trio on the couch to perk up and look. Eddie, my boy! Eddie bounds across the room, jumps into Martin's arms, and begins to lick his face. Niles recoils and rises off the couch. Where did you find him? I didn't. He was right here. He must have sensed your energy. Oh, I don't know about that. Maybe he just figured out the bus routes. Bus routes? 
Yes, indeed. We saw Eddie catch a bus today. Huh? <laughs> Martin holds Eddie out and gives him a puzzled look. How did you pay the fare? <laughs> the end. <laughs> From episode 18, Marcus writes Friends, based on the television series created by David Crane and Marta Kaufman. So we begin our cold open in Chandler's bedroom at night. Chandler is sleeping soundly in his bed. There's a loud crashing sound, which causes him to snort hilariously. (laughs) No, Mr. Jennings, we're not married. Chandler rolls over, and Joey prods him awake. Chandler shoots upright in shock. Mr. Jennings! What? Joey, why are you in here? I heard a noise. So? It might be a murderer. (laughs) If you don't leave, I might be a murderer. I'm serious. You, you, thought, know, you know I'm not, I'm not scared easily. You thought your reflection was a stalker because it wasn't as handsome as you think you are. Hey, either I'm wrong or the mirror is. And I don't think the mirror got a C-plus in Mrs. Willis's acting class. <laughs> what do I need to do to get you to leave? Well, as long as you're up, you could, you know, check. And apprehend the murderer with some hit hero mentioned skill? Oh, hitherto unmentioned <laughs> skill in martial arts? Don't be ridiculous. If you scream, I'll, I'll, make, I'll, I'll make for the fire escape. I'm shocked you didn't get a C-plus in bravery. That's not a real course. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> and then the famous Friends theme song plays. Life is hard when you're model attractive. You date a lot when you're model attractive. These six friends, they're all model attractive. They're super hot. They date a lot. They're your model attractive friends. Are white and also straight. <laughs> yeah. You guys remember dancing that one at prom in the nineties? <laughs> All right. <laughs> then we come back for the first act of the show, and we're still in Joey and Chandler's apartment at night. Chandler walks into the living room wearing a robe. Joey follows with a baseball bat. Someone is in the kitchen opening drawers. Chandler flicks on the light to reveal. Celebrity guest star mid-90s Ben Affleck. (laughs) Joey hits Chandler with the bat. Ow. Sorry. Hey, what are you doing here? Affleck doesn't turn around from a search through the kitchen drawers. Looking through the batteries. (laughs) You came here to steal batteries. No, I, I came here to steal something valuable. Do you have any? Any valuables? No, batteries. (laughs) Affleck turns around and gestures at the guy mess of the apartment. I'm pretty sure you don't have anything valuable. (laughs) They're in that drawer, but... So... But but, but so, help me if if, if you touch the cake. I'll... I'll, mm. Joey hits Chandler with the baseball bat again. Ow! Stop that! Affleck opens the drawer, takes some batteries that he installs in his flashlight. Thanks. I I, I can't do this, Chandler. I'm, I'm too pretty for jail. (laughs) <laughs> no matter what no matter what that uneducated mirror says why would you go to jail we're talking to a robber I told him where the drawer is I'm an accomplice he's robbing us you idiot you can't be arrested for that Affleck turns on his flashlight and verifies that it works hey I, I didn't mean to start a fight I, you seem like nice you seem like a nice couple I, I'll show myself out <laughs> whoa 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 couple like like a couple of guys who love the ladies, because you should see me at the bar. I'm always like, how you doing? <laughs> you can't expect us to just let you leave. Do you really want to stay up and file a police report? You didn't steal anything? 
Scout's honor. All right, then. Have a good night. Enjoy the batteries. See you around. Affleck leaves. Joey brandishes the bat. <laughs> Not if I see you first. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Into Monica and Rachel's apartment. Day. Monica, Rachel, Joey, and Chandler are sitting around eating breakfast. Joey is unwrapping a cupcake. You would not believe what happened to us last night. Oh, last night was incredible. Incredible? Did you have sex last night? Is, is this a sex cupcake? When Joey's ignored, he shrugs and continues to eat his cupcake. I heard what happened to Monica. What happened to you? It was terrible. In the middle of the night... I met somebody! Okay, so we're doing your thing. <laughs> These sex cupcakes are delicious. It was raining last night, and I was coming home late from the restaurant. And she met a guy? What happened to you two? Well, actually, there was... And I met this guy, and he was standing out in the rain, and he said he forgot his keys. And I let him into the building, and we talked and talked until it got dark. And then he said he had to go to work, so I gave him my flashlight, and I think I'm in love. Hold on. You let a guy into the building last night that you didn't know, and then you set him loose with a flashlight after dark? It's not like he's a gremlin. What's your problem? Yeah, you don't have to live with her. The problem, Monica, is that we were robbed last night by someone who just happened to have access to the building. Did the flashlight you gave him happen to have new batteries? Oh, no. I didn't check. Do you think that's why he isn't here yet? He said he was going to take me to Central Perk. What if the flashlight died? What if he died? Monica, honey, I think Chandler's saying that you let in a robber last night. Forget about the flashlight. No, that's impossible. He was the perfect gentleman. Forget about the flashlight. Well, what did he look like? We're fine, by the way. <laughs> Eating my fear. He was tall, check. dark hair, check, check. super dreamy. Oh my god. The robber was super dreamy. <laughs> Everyone turns to Sarah Joey. I mean, he, he would be if he, if he were a chick. <laughs> you should be careful around this guy, Monica. You're just jealous. Why don't you come into the cafe and see... With us and see if he's a good guy. Ross will be there. Why would I care about Ross being there? <laughs> oh, it's one of those weeks. We'll go to the coffee shop, and I'd like to meet this guy in the daylight. There's a knock at the door. That's him now! You'll see, there's no way he could be a thief. He's too handsome. He could never steal anything. Monica rushes to open the door, revealing Affleck. He's wearing a totally 90s blazer with huge lapels. <laughs> Hi. How are you doing? Hey, he stole my line! (laughs) Commercial break, and we come back to Central Perk. Ross and Phoebe are sitting on a couch in Central Perk. Phoebe is tuning her guitar, and Ross is being mopey, like Ross does. But it's okay, because he's still model attractive. (laughs) Chandler, Joey, and Rachel rush in. Hey, everybody, did you come to see me play? They stop short in their urgency and look quizzically from one another. We, uh, well, there's, um... Actually, uh, we kind of, but you, playing. Yeah, we could, uh, Monica's dating a beautiful robber. My sister's dating a woman? <laughs> no, the, the robber's a man. I just, I'm distraught. So you didn't come to see me play? Well, we kind of, uh... It's, it's not that we don't want to hear you play, it's just... Oh, uh, hi, Ross. Ross perks up when Rachel addresses him. Oh, hey, Rachel. Uh, I was kind of hoping we could talk privately later, uh, if you're free. Oh, why? <laughs> oh, uh, it's just one of those weeks. <laughs> Never mind. We could talk in May. <laughs> Phoebe, we need your help. This guy broke into our apartment last night, and he's going to bring Monica here. What can I do? 
Well, you know how Monica is. She won't listen to any of us when she gets in a relationship. She won't listen to me either. Like that time with the cat. <laughs> so what are we going to do? I know what it's like to date a bad boy. Back on the streets, those were the only kind of men I knew. Sure, it's fun at first, but when you're holding a cooler with a kidney that fell off a truck, and you, you realize the magic's gone. Well, whatever we're going to do, we better be fast. Here comes my sister and... Are you sure the hot guy's a robber? Right? <laughs> hey, everybody. I'd like you to meet Ben. Affleck shakes hands with everyone. Sorry we didn't get to be properly introduced when you rushed past us to get down here. We just wanted to make sure that you had good seats for Phoebe's performance. Oh, you play? I dabble. <laughs> yeah, you know, songs can have a great impact in what someone's doing with their life. I don't know. Most of my songs don't mean anything. <laughs> I think what Rachel's saying is that my sister might respond to the right tune. I don't think Camptown races as appropriate for the coffee shop, but... <laughs> no, like, we, what we were talking about earlier. Maybe a song about that? Kidneys? Oh! Oh, I got it. Yes, I, I think I may have a song that might just do the trick. Well, I, I can't wait to hear it. Is it an original? Of course. I would never steal anything. Phoebe gives Affleck the stink eye as she stands up to play. What was that about? Why can't you all just be supportive instead of making up stories? I'm supportive. I told you I like the sex cupcakes. <laughs> Do you want to leave, babe? No. Let's hear Phoebe play. Gunther, the manager of the coffee shop, walks over to introduce Phoebe. Hello, everybody, and Rachel. Uh, I'd like to introduce <laughs> our special music guest for the afternoon, Phoebe Buffet. Uh, if you heard her before, feel free to leave now. <laughs> a couple people file out of the room. Gunther walks back behind the counter. If she wasn't Rachel's friend. <laughs> Hello, Central Perk. I'd like to open my set today with a little song I wrote that I'm totally not just making up now about something that's totally unrelated to my friend dating a home invader. <laughs> Phoebe. Which... I don't know why I just said, because I'm not talking about anyone in particular, just a general song. Phoebe <laughs> winks at Rachel, who buries her head in her hands. One, two, one, two, three, four. Phoebe begins to play her guitar to accompany her improvised song. Sometimes your friends would like to see your show, but they hide their feelings way down low. Because there's love that shouldn't grow. Between a smart girl who's a chef and a criminal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so if this song sounds like where you are, singing with friends in the sky in a coffee bar, have this thief hit the road and run very far, you don't want to wind up with a kidney removal scar. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your name is, is. It could be something like... I don't know, Monica. <laughs> Just stay away. Let the trouble remain his. And don't go to jail to learn the harmonica. <laughs> oh, whoa. Don't date a criminal. Oh, oh. Monica don't stands up and Phoebe thing. stops playing. I can't believe you. What? That song wasn't about you. I just said a name like Monica. <laughs> I'm leaving. Ben? Monica rushes out of Central Perk. Ben <laughs> stands up and turns to the group. Well, it was... Nice meeting you all. 
Great plan. Ben flips Phoebe a tip and heads out of Central Perk. The five friends look back and forth between each other, speechless. Phoebe examines the tip she just got in her hand. Did he just tip me a flashlight battery? (laughs) (laughs) End of Act 2, commercial break. We come back to Monica and Rachel's apartment in the day. Monica is packing furiously as she runs around her apartment. Affleck is standing around, generally looking cool. You know, this is so typical of them. Every time I meet someone new, they try to ruin it. They seem nice enough. I mean, the guy's apartment was a bit of a sty. What? Nothing. I mean, I I think you're making the right choice in, in getting away for a while. Monica finishes packing and zips her suitcase sut. Is everything okay? <laughs> yeah. Let me take that. Monica hands Affleck the bag. A- and this. He leans in for a steamy kiss. Ooh. Hold for audience ooing. <laughs> you wrote that in there? <laughs> I'll see you outside. See you. Affleck opens the door, and Rachel, Ross, Joey, Chandler, and Phoebe all fall inside. Hello again. Oh, Monica, I'll need your keys. Here. Monica tosses Affleck the keys. I'll be down when I deal with this lot. I can't wait. Affleck leaves. (laughs) The five friends on the floor struggle to their feet. Where is he going? We are going away for a while. Don't do it, Monica. He made made me hit Chandler with a bat. Yeah, he made you. (laughs) I am tired of all you trying to ruin my good relationships. If you were really robbed last night... The cops would have been arrested. The cops would have arrested him when they were called. If we called. Why wouldn't you call the cops? Too sleepy. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm a performer. I've got, I've got to look good. And I was clubbed by my roommate. They're telling the truth. After you left, he threw a battery at me. I mean, it wasn't the first time someone threw a battery at me, and compared to my time on the streets, it was actually rather gentle. Gosh, I don't know where I stand on this one. (laughs) Just be safe, okay, honey? I don't want you taking things too fast, regardless of who this guy is. Take it from a runaway bride. (laughs) We are not going too fast. I just wanted to get away. We're going to Coney Island for the day. Wait, Coney Island? Why did you pack a bag then? You never stayed there. You never stay there at night. You've always been afraid of Carney since we were kids. <laughs> well, actually, it was Ben's idea. Oh. He said I was being too hard on you, and we were and there were really gonna be a if there were really a robber in the building last night, it might not be a good idea to leave my valuables around. Monica, what did you pack in the bag? You know, Just the essentials, my checks, some jewelry, the money I keep under my mattress. And you gave the bag to this guy you just met? Along with your car keys. Well, he was going to bring the car around. You know, he's a gentleman. You guys really need to relax and stop. The sounds of screeching tires cut Monica off. Chandler jumps. Joey rushes over to the window. You still drive that black hatchback, right? The Honda? Yeah. Well, good. At least we know your bag drove off in your car. (laughs) Monica slumps face down onto the couch. Joey, that's not helpful. Do you see anything useful? Well, the naked guy across the street got a new vase. (laughs) Really goes well with his wallpaper. So, no. No. Oh, Monica, are you going to be okay? Monica kicks her feet in the air but doesn't say anything. I'll call the cops. Good. 
I'll eat the rest of those sex cupcakes. <laughs> you know, so she doesn't have to think about them anymore. Everyone stares at Joey. What? <laughs> the end. <laughs> From episode 19, Eric writes John Wick. Based on the film written by Derek Kolstad and directed by Chad Stelhesky and David Leach. Helen, I'm sorry I didn't say goodbye this morning, but I left early. You looked like you were having a good dream, and I didn't want to ruin it. No reason for you to wake up just to start worrying about me, right? John Wick held onto the overhang of the roof and kicked hard at the window, which shattered inward as he dropped inside. The overweight man in the bed beside the window, who had been asleep a moment before, began screaming and scrambling to get to his feet and away from his killer. There was no time. John placed a bullet in the side of Lucchese's head, and his body slumped back into the pillows, a blossoming pool of blood staining the white sheets crimson. Men were now shouting from the grounds below, but the hallway outside Lucchese's bedroom was clear. He opened the door and stole down the hall. He met the thugs at the grand stairway that led down to the foyer and took the first one out before he could raise his gun. The other two began firing erratically, as thugs with full autos always did. John waited them out around the corner, then brought the chandelier down on the heads, on their heads, with a single precise shot. He walked down the stairs and silenced the screaming men with two more bullets. He took his time. John opened the front door to find another man reaching his hand out to grab the door's handle. The man was surprised. John was not. He thrust his pistol through the widening crack in the doorway and punched the man in the head as he fired. John stepped over the man's body and closed the door behind him. He walked to the front gate of the estate, killed the guard stationed there, let himself out, and hopped into the stang. He reloaded the pistol and drove off into the night. Tonight is a big night for me, Helen. A big night for us. By this time tomorrow, I'll be free and will be safe. I don't know if retirement will suit me or not, but I do know we'll make it work. Together. You have a way of making the best of any situation, and if I stick by you, that optimism might just wear off a little. But tonight is dark. Atherton had been expecting him. John went through the front door of his office and allowed himself to be searched. They removed his guns and knife, set them on a table by the door, and let him through. He was brought directly to Atherton himself, who had always preferred to work in the middle of the night, like a proper villain, as he often said. <laughs> Atherton had already gotten wind of Lucchese's death and thanked John for eliminating one of his biggest rivals. A large briefcase was then placed on the table by an assistant, which Atherton opened and turned so that John could see the heaping stack of cash inside. A thank you present, he explained, with a grin on his face. John smiled back, closed the briefcase, picked it up as if he were about to leave with it, then brought it down as hard as he could on the assistant's head. Atherton jumped out of his chair and reached for the pistol in his jacket, but John was already over the desk and descending on the mob boss. He relieved him of his firearm, fired it through Atherton's eye, socket, then killed the assistant as she attempted to draw her own gun. John left the briefcase lying on the floor and exited the office. He has given me an impossible task. 
He's opened the door just wide enough for me to see through to the other side. Yet he's also opened an endless chasm at my feet. In the most sensible parts of my mind, I know there is no crossing the span. But I can't allow those thoughts to control me. I must keep my head up and my eyes on that open door. Klaxons were blaring. John took out two guards as soon as he opened the door, collected their Beretta 92s, then called for the elevator. When the lift arrived and the chrome doors slid open, there were several heavily armed guards inside. Of course, this didn't concern John Wick, as he had already taken the stairs. At the fifth floor, he took out three men, <laughs> then discarded Atherton's spent pistol. At the third floor, two more men dropped dead thanks to the pair of Berettas he now wielded. At the first floor, he killed a thug as he stepped into the stairwell, then used the man's body as a shield as he broached the lobby. Ten semi-autos opened fire simultaneously, which soon became nine, which soon became eight, which soon became seven. <laughs> the corpse he was holding disintegrated in his hands, so he took cover behind the reception desk. The gunfire ceased, and the remaining men approached cautiously. They were caught by surprise as John used his legs to thrust the desk out across the slick marble floor, which collided with four of them and sent them to the ground. John took out the three men who had remained upright, picked up one of their semi-autos, and sprayed it into the fallen men to keep them from regaining their feet. Another four bullets found their way into the skulls of the fallen men before John collected his weapons to the door, at the door. Two down. Do you know what I see through that doorway, Helen? You. You and me in our wonderful future together. Nassar had apparently gotten wind of Atherton and Lucchese's assassinations and decided to skip town, which John Wick learned from Charon at the Continental. A parade of black SUVs had been spotted tearing into the Lincoln Tunnel on their way to a private airfield in Hackensack, so John moved to intercept. The convoy found John Wick outside Jersey City, his 69 Mustang parked on the side of the road just past the nearly deserted Turnpike Toll Station. The black SUVs would have driven right past him with no notice of if John hadn't completely destroyed the lead vehicle with a heavy chain that he had winched between two light posts that stood on opposite sides of the road. When the SUV struck the chain, the posts came down in a screeching shower of twisted metal and sparks, forcing the remaining vehicles to come to a quick stop. The drivers and thugs, who dared step out of their vehicles to investigate the scene, each received a single bullet in the back of their heads. Six bullets total. Panic ensued, and a single SUV tore its way out of the pileup and began careening the wrong way back towards the toll booths. John Wick made chase. After tonight, though I face immeasurable dangers, we will leave my past with all its pain and hurt behind. That life, along with many others, will cease to be. Stones dropped into the abyss. I just hope I am still the man you fell in love with after I am through. John used a heavy caliber handgun to take out the tires of the SUV he pursued into oncoming traffic on the New Jersey Turnpike. When the vehicle finally spun out into the ditch, John parked the Stang, reloaded the massive pistol, and stepped out of the car. Three thugs were ready for him. They began firing wildly, shots ricocheting unnervingly close to the Stang. John's first shot from the hand cannon took a thug's head clean off. His second shot took out the driver, 
who had rolled down his window to fire back. John ducked behind the SUV, taking advantage of the vehicle's bulletproof glass that was supposed to be keeping Nassar safe inside. Several of the remaining two thugs' shots went wild over John's head as he crouched to the ground and removed their feet for them. The screams <laughs> only lasted for a few seconds before John cut them short. Nassar cowered on the floor inside the SUV. John casually walked to the front of the vehicle, reached into the driver's open window, and unlocked the doors. Without so much as a fight, John opened the rear door and finished the job. He took a deep breath and looked towards the gathering light of dawn on the horizon. Police sirens screamed in the distance, but for a moment, John Wick felt peace. I have been given an impossible task, Helen. But tonight, I will look up, I will see you through that open door, and I will know that it can be done. Love, John fucking Wick. (laughs) (laughs) The end. From episode 20, Andrew writes Bob's Burgers, based on the television show created by Lauren Bouchard. Bob was freaking out a little. It was lunch hour. He was in his usual spot, standing before the grill with his trusty spatula, doing what he did best, making some tasty burgers. What had Bob nervous was the number of patties sizzling on that grill, and therefore, the number of patrons in his establishment. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, Bob thought. (laughs) Linda entered from the back room, carrying a large bag of crinkle-cut fries. Linda, honey, can you believe this? Bob asked, (laughs) gesturing to the lobby of the restaurant. Linda noticed a nervous smile beneath his impressive mustache. I know, dear, she replied as she passed behind him towards the friars. It's quite the rush. Seven whole guests? And Teddy isn't even here. Bob hadn't noticed this. He quickly scanned the restaurant. You're right. Oh, man, can you imagine if we get eight people in here? It would be the biggest rush we've had since opening. A bead of sweat fell from Bob's brow onto the grill, evaporating into a tiny puff of steam. Oh, don't be so nervous, Linda said as she dumped fries into the fryer baskets and activated the frying cycle. With business like this, you should be, she snorted a little before continuing, over the moon. They both laughed. This was funny because it happened to be astronaut Neil Armstrong's birthday that day. (laughs) Bob's Burgers was observing the occasion with their burger of the day, the Meal Parmstrong Burger, which had grated Parmesan cheese seared onto the bun and a slice of Swiss atop the patty. Good. Thanks for the laugh, hon, Bob said as he leaned over and gave Linda a peck on the cheek. She shivered. She loved it when his luxurious mustache hair brushed her face. Oh, mama likey, she thought. (laughs) <laughs> she hardly had any time to likey the moment when Tina bust through the front door, accompanied by the lazy ring of its electronic chime. This drew the attention of everyone in the restaurant. The look of horror on Tina's face only expressed a fraction of the horror blazing through her mind. She looked around the room with tear-filled eyes until she saw the blobs that looked most like her parents. She ran over to the counter and stopped across from them. I need to hide, she said through heavy breaths. <laughs> Whoa now, dear, what's the matter? Linda asked. She hadn't seen her daughter this worked up since Zane left One Direction. Jimmy Jr.'s coming, Linda cried. 
Bob grimaced and glanced around the room. His seven cherished guests were all peering in his family's direction. Uh, Linda, uh, he began. (laughs) Tina, honey, why are you hiding from Jimmy Jr.? Linda asked. Some, because someone gave him, they, they, they gave him. Tina hesitated before shouting, I can't tell you. And Latina turned away from her parents and ran into the back room. They'd never understand, she thought as she began to sum. How could they? Bob turned to his wife as a couple more beats of his sweat hit the grill. Uh, can you? He began. On it. Linda replied as she disappeared into the back. Bob looked around at his clearly uncomfortable guests. Uh, teenagers, right? He said with a shrug. The diners all smiled or chuckled politely. Then the front door chime rang again, followed by an angry voice. Belcher! Jimmy Pesto stood in the front door, accompanied by his son Jimmy Jr. Pesto's face was as red as his signature marinara, while Jr.'s was as pale as the house Alfredo. Pesto stormed over to the counter, pushing his son forward with one hand and grasping a composition notebook in the other. Pesto leaned over and waved the notebook in Bob's face. What the hell is wrong with your daughter? Pesto demanded. Bob quickly looked past the irate Italian man to his guests, who were once again glancing over at the drama at the counter. He knew they wouldn't take much more of this. Uh, Jimmy? Bob began. I'm sorry if Tina... Do you know the type of crap your daughter's been writing about my boy? Pesto asked. Uh, Bob hesitated. What, What kind of crap? Inappropriate crap! Pesto elaborated. Get a load of this. He swung open the notebook and flipped through a few pages until he found a passage exemplifying his point. He cleared his throat for effect and began to read aloud so the whole restaurant could hear. As our Ferris wheel carriage jerked to a stop at the peak of its revolution, Jimmy Jr. reached over and calmly took the cone of cotton candy from my hand. He took a bite let the sweet pink fluff dissolve on his supple tongue, and leaned over to kiss me all over my face. Uh, 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 uh Jimmy, Bob started. Uh, you, you, you can stop. I get what you... Oh, no! Pesto interrupted. No, we haven't gotten to the good part. <clears throat> when he finally kissed me on the lips, I could taste the cotton candy. It was so sweet and so delicious, I reached around his back and pulled him closer to me. As we continued to kiss, passion overtook me, and my hand crept further and further down his back until I felt my fingers touch the supple skin at the top of his butt. Pesto slammed the notebook shut and threw it down on the counter. Explain this to me, Bobby boy. Uh, it seemed pretty straightforward, Bob replied, though he didn't like how much his daughter used the word supple. (laughs) You think this is a joke? Pesto snarled. No wonder your kids are so screwy. Hey now, Bob exclaimed, pointing his spatula at Pesto. My kids aren't screwy. The chime on the front door rang again. Hey, Dad, look who I am, Jim shouted. Knock down, Jim, Bob shouted back in reply before doing a double take in his son's direction. Gene was standing in the doorway wearing a kid-scale replica of Neil Armstrong's spacesuit from the Apollo 11 mission. Through the open visor in the suit, Gene grinned ear to ear. This was literally the happiest the boy had ever been in his entire life. (laughs) Meanwhile, 
His father was really starting to freak out. Oh my god, Bob said, too shocked to be angry. He had a full flop sweat going now. He couldn't decipher (laughs) if the sizzles below him were from his burgers or his perspiration. Gene bounded forward in long, awkward strides, trying to simulate the moon's low gravity. He made noises to accent each step for some reason, unknown even to him. I'm Neil Armstrong, he he shouted. (laughs) Gene, where'd you get that? Bob asked. On Zoomacroom.com, like you said? Gene shouted. (laughs) Uh, uh, like who said? Like I said? Bob's mind wasn't working fast enough for the situation. Yeah, in your note, Gene shouted. And I chose the super speedy two-hour delivery like you wanted, so I could get it before lunch and wear it in front of the shop for advertising purposes. Looks expensive, Pesto commented. It was the most expensivest one, and non-reflendable. Gene shouted as he be- shouted as he ran behind the counter. Dad, Dad, pick me up! I want you to blast me off! Gene, no! Bob cried as Gene jumped around him in the bulky suit with his arms in the air. Blast me off! Blast me off! Gene! Bob pleaded. You need to stop! As Bob tried to settle his son down, the chime on the front door rang once more. <laughs> Linda, I have come for you! Hugo called. The handsome health inspector was wearing a flattering pinstripe suit suit, with polished shoes and brandished a massive bouquet of flowers. Are you freaking kidding me? Bob seethed as Hugo approached the counter, grinning ear to ear. Hugo had received a life-changing call that morning from Linda, his one true love. She had said, in the girlish voice he remembered from when they were kids, that she was finally ready to run away with him and live the fairy tale life he'd always foreseen for them. This was literally the happiest Hugo had ever been in his entire life. I've come to sweep my Linda away from your mustachioed clutches, Bob. Hugo exclaimed with a dramatically, comp- a dramatically complimentary point of his finger. Bob opened his mouth to respond, but nothing came out. So Pesto seized the, seized the opportunity. You got a lot of nerve, Hugo, he said. Yeah, Hugo, Bob began, but Pesto wasn't finished. Given me a B on your last inspection? A B to Jimmy Pesto? Where do you get off? <laughs> Pesto lunged forward at Hugo, who squealed in fear and shoved his bouquet into Pesto's face. Pesto grabbed the flowers and threw them on the ground. He proceeded to stomp on them as he cursed Hugo and his restaurant's inadequate health score. Bob looked past the chaos at the counter and into the restaurant lobby, where not a single guest remained. However, Hmm. in place of his lost patrons, a lone figure stood in in the center of the room. She wore a Machiavellian smile beneath her pink bunny ear hat. At the sight of her, Bob finally snapped. All right, stop, he shouted with all the anger he had mustered. As intended, everyone froze and fell silent. They all turned from Bob to the little girl with the bunny ears. Bob stormed around the counter to confront his youngest. Why did you do all this, Louise? he asked. (laughs) Daddy, what are you talking about? She replied with an innocent scrunch of her nose. She had prepared to play the long con with him. You're behind all this, Bob replied. Behind what? Everything that's happening. Yes, I am, she confessed, already bored with the long con. 
So why? Bob demanded. Because you said I can't go to the moon! Louise screeched. She crossed her arms and glared at Bob, who was not expecting anything close to this answer. In fact, it took him a few seconds to process what his daughter had said. Finally, it sunk in, and his anger returned. Of course you can't go to the moon, he yelled. Why not? Louise yelled back. Because you can't just go to the moon. Neil Armstrong did. Neil Armstrong was an astronaut. So? So astronauts go into space. Normal people don't go into space. Then I want to be an astronaut. Well, you can't. Bob cut himself off. He gazed into the teary eyes of his little girl. He couldn't say what he was about to say with those eyes looking back at him. He wouldn't say it because it wasn't true. He got down on one knee and looked straight at her at his daughter. You can, he told her. You can be an astronaut. You can be whatever you want to be and go wherever you want to go. Like the moon? She asked with a sniff. Yes, Bob said, like the moon. Louise's eyes widened in awe. She thought about every possible place in the whole wide world that she could go. The moon. New York. China. Grandma's house. Wonderland. Walmart. Wow, she said as it all sunk in. Then, after a beat, she blinked. Cool! Thanks, Dad! She kissed him on the cheek and ran behind the counter to play with Jean. Bob smiled and touched his cheek where she had kissed him. It wasn't the happiest moment of his entire life, but it was a pretty good one. The end. From episode 21, Marcus writes The Darjeeling Limited, based on the film written by Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola and directed by Wes Anderson. Spending a week in the presidential suite of The Darjeeling Limited cost more than six times the average yearly income of a worker in India. The suite was designed to make the passengers feel like princes, with lavish furniture embroidered in gold. Some of the works of art that hung on the walls also cost more than the average yearly income of a worker in India. The suite had two bedrooms, three beds, two couches, a dining room with six chairs, and two bathrooms with full-size showers. It was extravagant beyond the means of most of the billion people native to the land the train barreled through, as it took tourists to monuments of historical and religious importance that had stood for hundreds of years. Francis, Peter, and Jack Whitman could not agree on many things accepting their general desire not to be around each other more than absolutely necessary. They did, however, agree that the presidential suite of the Darjeeling Limited was a little small for their liking. <laughs> they had had the option of booking additional suites, but the train only had one presidential suite, and none of the brothers were willing to have lesser accommodations than the others. And so it was at their pilgrimage through India that they were unhappily confined to one of the finest rail suites known to the modern world. <laughs> On the third day of their journey, around meditation time, the train came to an unexpected stop about 100 yards away from Agrifront or Agrifort train station. A knock came from the door, and Francis, the eldest brother, was the first to respond. He shouted, Brandon! And the knocking stopped. The porter whose duty it was to inform the passengers of the presidential suite of any interruptions in service was led away from the suite by Francis's assistant, Brandon. <laughs> and Francis returned to his meditation, where he was immediately interrupted by his two brothers, Peter and Jack. Why did we stop? I was writing about a character riding on a train, and now we're stopped on a train, Jack said. It's not the same. <laughs> Close your eyes, Francis said, and look around you. Maybe you could imagine the train is still going. That would require you to write an original thought, Peter said. 
<laughs> Why are we stopped? Isn't Brandon supposed to alert us of any changes in itinerary? Jack said, ignoring his brother's barb. Brandon is supposed to remain out of sight at all times, Francis said. But I'm sure he will. Yes. Francis's cell phone chimed, and he pulled it out to read the message. Brandon says that we are stopped very near the station due to a mechanical issue on the tracks. Hmm. How near? Jack asked. We could just check out the window, Peter said. He looked a lot like their late father when he said it, and not just because he was wearing a gray suit and glasses that had belonged to their old man. Francis gave up any hopes of returning to his meditation at this point and lowered his arms. He stood and walked over to his window, where he easily swung it open. He pulled a tasseled dressing bench over from the foot of his bed and stepped onto it so he could peer out of the side of the train. Oh, wow, he said. (laughs) You can see the station from here. (laughs) That's not a measure of distance, Jack said. I can see across the Milky Way on a clear night. It's daytime. The station's not that far away, Francis said. He stepped down from the dressing bench and moved it back to the end of the bed. Why'd you move that? Jack said. What if I wanted to look? (laughs) It's the only thing tying this ridiculous room together. It's feng shui. (laughs) That's Chinese, Jack said. Come on, Peter. He turned to leave. He's right. It is Chinese, Peter said. He had pulled out a cell phone and wasn't looking at the other two. Ignoring the brothers was just like their father, but their father generally would have had a cigar in his hand instead of a cell phone. Jack walked past Peter out of the bedroom, and Peter followed, leaving Francis sitting alone in his bandages, perfectly framed in the middle of the doorway. (laughs) Jack sat across from Peter on their twin beds in the suite's second bedroom. Their profiles aligned perfectly with the doorway. I think this is it for me, Jack said. This is the end of the line. Whatever we're doing here, I'm done. I'm sure they'll fix the problem soon, Peter said. She's going to be in Italy soon. What about Dad, Peter said, taking off their father's glasses. Sure, Francis is Francis, but we're here for Dad, aren't we? I came here for Dad, Jack said, but it's time I leave. For her. The two brothers sat in silence that echoed the entirety of their year's communication since the funeral. At last, Peter spoke. Alice is pregnant. You already told me, Jack said. (laughs) Oh, Peter said. Right. They returned to their silence. A shout from Francis pulled them out a few minutes later. A few minutes after that, they went to his room. When Peter and Jack made their way into their brother's room, they were greeted by the sight of a young Indian boy who had climbed up the side of the train and popped his head through the window. (laughs) Hello, friends of the scary face man, the boy said. If you give me your bags, I will take them to the station. I already told you no, Francis said. We don't have any bags. In fact, their father's full 11-piece luggage set was under the strict supervision of Brandon, who would hire locals to carry the baggage around whenever they had to leave the train. Only five American dollars. Me and my friends are strong. They lifted me up here. Who knows when the train will go away again? Go away, Francis said. We're trying to experience your country, and we don't need any help. No. (laughs) No, Aladdin's right, Jack said. We have no idea when the train's going to move again. I am Ravi, the boy said. I'm going with you, kid. I'll be your baggage. Jack walked over and moved the dressing bench to under the window. Hey, my feng shui, Francis said. (laughs) That is Chinese, said the boy. (laughs) Jack stood up on the dressing bench, and in a moment moment later, the boy and his friends had pulled him through. 
Silence entered the space where Jack had been as Francis and Peter were left alone together. Fine, Peter said after some time. Alice is pregnant. Wow, Francis said. (laughs) That's it? That's all you can say hearing you're going to be an uncle? I already knew about it, Pete. I read it in one of Jack's stories. Oh, Peter said. My characters are based in fiction, came a shout from outside the train. Francis and Peter both stood evenly spaced on the bench to look down at their brother, covered in mud outside the train. Yeah, Jack said. Aladdin took my wallet and ran away. Anyway, the station just is just about 100 yards away. Want to come out here and we can see the Taj Mahal? Dad always never talked about seeing it. I'm sure we'll fix the train soon. Why don't you come back up, Francis said. Jack looked down the tracks and up to his brothers. All right. With some effort, Francis and Peter were able to pull Jack back up onto the train. Exhausted from the ordeal and the encounter with the local child, the three brothers stopped fighting for a moment and decided to meditate in their rooms, which quickly turned to sleeping. By the time they (laughs) woke, the train had been fixed and left the station to make up for lost time. The change in itinerary was noted in the updated schedules that Brandon printed, laminated, and slid under the doors in the night. Later, Jack would write a story about the incident that he would claim was entirely original. In that story, as in real life, the characters would be woefully unaware of the opportunity they had missed in passing by a chance to see the beautiful red walls of Agra Fort and the brilliant golden spires of the Taj Mahal. In their defense, they would have hated the crowds. The end. (laughs) From episode 22, Eric writes Silicon Valley, based on the television series created by Mike Judge, John Altshuler, and Dave Krinsky. Have you ever debugged code in your life? Richard found himself shouting as he typed frantically on the outdated keyboard before him. He could hear the crowd gathering on the other side of the curtain, and Ehrlich wasn't making his life any easier. Yeah, but I'm not usually debugging code written by a four-year-old with MS. (laughs) Ehrlich, Ehrlich spat back from the console on the other side of the table. It's so garbled. Did Big Head write this thing? Was he using his gigantic head to code instead of his fingers? (laughs) It doesn't matter who wrote the code, Richard moaned. What matters is getting this demo up and running so our potential investors can see the compression algorithm working in real time. And for your information, it was Dinesh. Just find the timestamp error and shut up. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Who? Ehrlich said casually. What's this name? Dinesh? You mean that guy who's dead to me now? Fuck! He began banging his fists on the keyboard in frustration. Stop punching the computer! That machine needs to run the demo! Fuck! The demo, man! It's two minutes until showtime, and we're dead in the water! No, we can fix this, Richard said, in a way that said, I wish I had never been born. (laughs) Seriously, this code, though began Ehrlich, with an irritatingly ponderous tone. Why is this thing so beefy? It's like two million lines, and all it does is compress files. What gives? Richard was not in the mood for criticisms from the like of Ehrlich. He sighed, put his elbows on the table, and buried his face in his hands. He took a long breath. Ehrlich... You don't get the highest Weissman score in history by writing five lines of code, okay? It's a bit more complicated than... 
or like cut him off. Oh, here it is. Look at me. I'm Richard. I got the highest Weissman score ever, and now Ehrlich can blow me, even though he's just here to help after the dickhole twins abandon ship. <laughs> Richard had stopped listening. He was back to scanning the code on his display. Ah! He chimed, pointing at his computer screen. Ehrlich, Ehrlich, this is what you're looking for. Uh, var nums equals pps.runtime344. It should be somewhere near there. Oh, okay. Okay, I got it, but, but no go. It's still crashing. Did you compile? Should I? Compile! Fuck! <laughs> Fine! Compiling! Take a fucking Xanax, man! <laughs> Jared appeared from the other side of the curtain. Oh, Richard yeah. and Ehrlich groaned. Uh, hey guys, uh, just checking to see if, if maybe that, that demo was up and running? Fuck you, Jared! Ehrlich shouted. <laughs> it's not ready, Jared, Richard breathed. Oh, said Jared, it's just that I don't know if you know the time. Uh, we know the time, Jared, Richard seethed. Uh, we're supposed to be starting now and- Fucking fuck off, Jared! <laughs> Ehrlich screeched. Jared jumped and ran back through the curtain. They could hear him make his apologies to the crowd. Uh, Still crashing. Fucking call it, man, urged Ehrlich. Richard shook his head, frantically typing code as he did so. We can't let him win, Ehrlich. He thinks he can buy us, but he can't. We'll show him. (laughs) Gavin Belson checked his watch. 7.05. Five minutes late. That's a good sign. He closed his eyes and took a long breath through his nose. He had won. He looked over at the two idiots sitting next to him in their cheap fold-up auditorium seats. They were whispering to one another. They were nervous. More than that, they were shitting themselves. (laughs) Gavin grinned. "Uh, What's the matter, boys? He asked them with the smirkiest smirk his face could muster. Your team running late? Uh, uh, no, Mr. Belson, said the brown one immediately. What was his name? What was his name? Ganesha? That sounded right. The white one, who Gavin had heard Ganesha called Gilroy or some shit, was nodding frantically beside his friend. Both of them were idiots. And cheap. Do you know why I hired you two? He asked, mostly due to boredom. Uh, so we can help you backwards engineer Richard Hendricks's computer algorithm? Said the white Gilroy guy. Belson raised his eyebrows. It was a surprisingly blunt answer from such an idiot. <laughs> no, he said shortly. He didn't want to make it seem as if he had been impressed by the idiot's answers. Brown guy? <laughs> the brown guy frowned and swallowed his chewing gum. Uh... He mumbled, after a moment, to screw Richard before the product launch? Bingo! Brown guy wins! Belson enthused, (laughs) waving his right hand in the air in a mimicry of what could be interpreted as masturbation. The white guy seemed surprised. You hired us back just so you could ruin this presentation? He asked like an idiot. Of course, you idiot! Belson growled. When this shit flops, the value of Pied Piper is going to hit the toilet, and I'll snatch it up and turn it into my pool room. (laughs) The white guy had the gall to speak again. So, you're saying you're not interested in... 
the algorithm that produced the highest Weissman score? Let me make one thing clear, Belson cut in. He wasn't here to make conversation with his own pawns, and this pawn was getting too friendly. He continued, There will always be a new algorithm or a new app or a new, better, faster something. Every goddamn nerd with a big idea always thinks they were put on this earth to give the world that next big thing. You say Richard Hendricks got the highest Weissman score ever? Great. He can shove his Weissman score up his ass. What he doesn't realize is that in two weeks, some other hacker wannabe motherfucker is going to beat his precious score, and then what will Richard Hendricks have? Yesterday's high score and the lingering taste of my cock in his mouth. (laughs) Do I care about his algorithm? Sure, why not? I might even make a little money from it after I buy it from him for a bag of peanuts and a good whiff of my balls. But don't (laughs) delude yourself into thinking that I'm in the business of innovation for innovation's sake. I'm not here to give the world the next great, bigger, faster thing. I'm here to watch Richard Hendricks bleed out in front of a thousand of the most well-connected people in Silicon Valley. The idiots looked surprisingly, er, looked appropriately stunned. Belson smiled, but then the sound of hundreds of phones chiming simultaneously distracted him. The idiots checked their phones. He pulled his own out of his jacket and saw that he, too, had just received a text message from an unknown number. What the fuck? He asked himself (laughs) as hundreds of small screens began appearing from every pocket in the auditorium. What the fuck? said Ehrlich as he stared at his phone. Richard was doing likewise from his prone position on the floor. He had decided that the best way to deal with his current world-ending predicament was to lie down and wait for the end times. He stared unblinking at the message for a long moment. It read, Pan Flute from Pied Piper. Sign up for the beta. Followed by a link. Richard clicked it, which took him to a sign-up page. It's my app. What the fuck? He asked himself quietly. Everyone in the auditorium just got the same message, said a woman's voice from the stage door. Richard sat up in a daze and saw Monica standing there. He suddenly felt very embarrassed that he had given up and taken to lying on the floor. With a jolt, he rose to his feet, swayed slightly as the blood drained from his head, and dropped his phone with a crack on the polished concrete. Monica, he croaked. Hi. Hello, Richard, she said with a flat tone. You better get out there and say something, because I just bought you fuckers two extra days. The words didn't make sense to Richard. They entered his ears, bounced off the mush that used to be his brain, and fell back out again. He expressed this verbally. (laughs) Monica walked over to Richard and put both hands on his shoulders. It felt nice. Richard, please, she said as she shook him like a rag doll. Peter heard the demo wasn't ready, so he sent me to buy you some time. That's what I did, and it wasn't easy to get 800 mobile numbers and and to create a fictional beta test for your bullshit app in, like, five fucking minutes, you understand? He nodded his head, but he couldn't tell if he actually understood or if he was just nodding because that's what Monica wanted him to do. Ehrlich piped in. Fuck, bro. Everyone out there just got this message? 
Uh, th they'll assume uh, this was part of the plan. An exclusive invite. What? Asked Richard. Ehrlich ran over to where Richard and Monica stood and slapped Richard across the face. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> Dude, you have to get out on stage and thank everyone for being a part of the beta. Uh, tell them they'll be able to get their hands on pan flute when the beta launches. That's way better than a stupid fucking onstage demo. Monica, having backed a few feet away from the men, nodded. And this new beta of yours starts in 48 hours. Now's your chance, Richard. Richard stared, dazed at Monica for a long moment, then threw up on the floor. <laughs> the end. From episode 23, Andrew Wright's Titan AE, based on the film written by Ben Edlin, John August, and Joss Whedon. A disturbance, sudden and severe. It shook her utterly down to the smallest piece of herself. In a flash, she saw a column of bright light towering up into an unknown atmosphere and beyond, but the sight quickly vanished. She had experienced similar sensations recently, but each time the vision had been different. These disturbances had been coming to her with increasing frequency and power. She had anticipated it this time, as she had the last, but it was nonetheless troublesome to her. A pattern was emerging, and she was unsure to what end. No matter. This time, she was prepared. Billions of reactions began to surge within her white-hot core. Using the fuel <laughs> she had amassed since the second disturbance, she fused particles together and pushed them toward her surface, where she had been storing excess magnetic energy. As intended, when the particles reached her surface, they forced the magnetic streams to cross and explode into violent flares, which jettisoned the particles outward into the black void at magnificent speeds. Each of them were a part of her. Everything they touched, she would see. Everywhere they went, she would be there. She would find her enemy, and she would destroy it. Information flooded her almost immediately, a deluge of stimuli so immense it would have caused any biological organism to go mad. In fractions of an instant, she saw every body of matter in the nearest three solar systems, as well as her own. Every planet, asteroid, rock, organism, and molecule came into crisp focus for an amount of time too brief to be a moment, before dissolving into unconscious darkness, stored for future recollection if required. As wave of particles reached further and further into space, more and more came into her view. She would find her quarry before, her quarry before long. Of that she was confident. Reconnaissance waves like this were how she learned about the galaxy and made it her own. She had studied the intelligent inhabitants of every planet and monitored their development. When a society became too advanced, she would become an army and destroy it. So many had fallen to her wrath the cephalopod soldier race of Calamarian, the passive tree-delling marsupial men of Eucalyptia, the hairless bipedal apes of... Boom! A heavy pulse rippled through her, traveling inward to her core. Another disturbance? No, it couldn't be. Surely it had to be a residual wave from the previous, but why did this feel stronger? What was happening? A flash. Anticipation. An emotion. She felt anxious. She was now looking around at etchings of strange symbols covering walls of purple stone. She reached out a curious hand 
and felt the grooves of a circular symbol before her, which slowly began to glow at her touch. White light threaded its way out to adjacent glyphs and continued to spread from one to the next until eventually every figure was illuminated. Boom! The sound came from above. She looked up into the open sky, where dark clouds surged with veins of lightning. The clouds were rotating, and at their center, the great column of light extended into infinity. She thought she saw it begin to dim. Flash! Waves and waves of information continued to pour in from her traveling particle sensors as they passed through planet after planet. Dragonia, home of the dragon-riding horse lords. Bazizazaz, <laughs> home of seven species of intelligent insects. Neither of these places, nor any of the others coming in, were where she had just been. The sensation she had experienced was not of the kind produced by her particle sensors. It was something else. A presence she hadn't felt since. <laughs> Flash! Trepidation in emotion. She felt uneasy. The column of light was indeed dimming, and as it dimmed, it constricted and shook like an elastic band being pulled too far. She felt small next to its vastness. She turned away from the unnerving sight back down to the glowing glyphs on the walls around her. She somehow knew them, although she couldn't place how or from where she knew them. It was as if she was recalling the knowledge from afar, like it wasn't her own. It seemed like flash. Planet, asteroid, rock, organism, molecule... More and more, over and over. However, once again, she recognized none as where she had just been. Impatience flared within her. She had to be close. As she processed the increasing amount of stimuli from the expanding reach of her particle sensors, she thought of the glyphs on the purple stone walls. Thousands of intelligent organisms across her galaxy use similar characters as written language at some point in their development. Some less advanced societies continue to use them. She routed some of her energy to activate the dormant particle clusters she used as information stores. Within moments, after reviewing billions of clusters, she found what she wanted. The language was developed by Flash, professors of cryptology, linguistics, and Mesopotamian and Egyptian history on Earth in the mid-21st century. This small group of academics used it as a means to share secret information, frequently in plain sight of others. The language was used by very few outside of those who created it. Confusion. An emotion. She felt perplexed. Why had that random bit of information struck her all of a sudden? Where had it come from? It told her where these symbols on the wall before her had originated, but not how to read them. She heard a voice call her name. She recognized it and turned towards its source. A middle-aged man with piercing blue eyes. He stood nearby, pointing at her. What? She asked. Look! He exclaimed as he continued to point. Look at what? She asked. Flash! There! At last her sensors had found it, the source of the disturbance. It was on... It was on... She paused. Several seconds elapsed, which was far more time than she gave for most reactions. No! She finally thought. It can't be! Flash! Your hand! Corso cried. Kale looked from his captain down to his right hand, where the ring he wore had once again was once again glowing by glowing a recognizable ghostly blue. He watched as the circle of light appeared in his palm, but this time, from its center, a ray of light shot upward into his eyes. 
The sensation he felt at that moment was unlike anything he'd ever experienced. It felt like his mind was reaching past his own memories and into something deeper and more expansive. For less than an instant, he was overwhelmed by an unfathomable wave of stimulation, but he passed through all of it and locked onto a very specific information, piece of information. Once he had it, he looked at the wall of glyphs before him, where the symbols began to transform into vivid three-dimensional images. He saw a great blue star, connected by bridges of energy to five surrounding planets. One bridge collapsed, and the star shrunk and dimmed. Over the disconnected planet, a new object appeared. It appeared to be a spaceship, but one unlike Kale had ever seen before. It traveled around to the four remaining planets, and as it passed each, the planet's connection to the star broke, and the star would weaken. When no bridges remained, the star shriveled up and disappeared. Suddenly, the spaceship shot upward into the sky just as the light column splintered into strands of swirling blue and shattered into a blinding explosion. Kale closed his eyes reflexively and shielded himself. After the sound and the heat from the blast had dissipated, he reopened his eyes and took in a clear sky of twinkling stars. He looked into his hand, where the next leg of the map shined up at him. This time, he already knew where it would lead them. He turned to Corso. Captain, he began, you said the dredge were pure energy, right? <laughs> I may have mentioned it, the captain replied. <laughs> well, Kale continued, I think we just found their off switch. He felt joy then, and admiration for the father who'd left all this behind to guide him. However, somewhere, deep down past his own emotions, something very powerful was angry and afraid, and he knew his crew was in grave danger. The end. <laughs> From episode 24, Marcus writes The Wolf of Wall Street, based on the film written by Terrence Winter and directed by Martin Scorsese. Do you regret what you said? Are you fucking kidding me? I'm a federal agent, Mr. Becker, and I'm asking you, do you regret what you said? Look, this is a goddamn hospital. I've got a few other things on my mind right now, like when I'll be able to move again without screaming. So if you don't have a warrant, I think this investigation of yours is over. In other words, piss off. You misunderstand me, Mr. Becker. This isn't an official investigation. If it was, the FBI might be interested in what you were doing high on quaaludes on an unregistered yacht in international waters with no less than five members of the Jersey Mafia. The fucking mob was there? Inconsequential. I'm only interested in him. <laughs> Belfort. Yes. And if I don't talk? There are plenty of reporters outside who would love to put you on the record, and we know how well that worked out for you last time. I could also re recommend to my director that we do a little more official digging into your story, which would also become a matter of public record. The choice is yours. I just want to talk. Privately. But I'm only going to ask you one more time. Do you regret what you said? Fucking yes, okay? I said that to Belford, too, for all the good it did me. Ow! Why did you say it, then? Because it's true. And this just proves it. I mean, what kind of psychopath is this guy? I'm not in a position to make that kind of judgment. Why don't you talk me through what happened after the article was published? Well, for a while, it was great. Avant-garde documentary filmmaker George Becker takes on Wall Street. They called me a filmmaker. 
even though I hadn't found any funding in over five years. But this article was starting to turn even that around. I was getting calls. I wasn't the only one in Hollywood who thought that way about places like Stratton Oakmont. I was just the only one with a shitty enough career to say something, and the dumb luck enough to be able to grab one of the firm's names out of the air. So you weren't targeting Stratton Oakmont specifically? No, I was just pulling that out of my ass, you know? Trying to sound smart. I'd read the name in a paper a few days before, while waiting to meet an investor who never showed up, by the way. Stuck with me. Now I'll never forget it. You weren't afraid of repercussions? I was just happy to talk to a reporter who wanted to talk to me. Made me feel like I was still someone, you know? And why would I worry about Belford and that Weasley guy? Aesop. <laughs> yeah, they had more money than God. What should they care about and nobody in L.A. talking shit? But the article came out and my quote was on the front page. I guess a copy made its way to New York. Complete with the worst fucking choice of words I have ever made in my life. Wasn't long after that that I received an invitation in the mail. And did the invitation explicitly state that it was from Stratton Oakmont? Yes, it did. But honestly, it never crossed my mind that they might be unhappy with me. My only thought was that I was going to be on a boat full of rich investors and free booze. When I got there, the women made me forget about that even. Are you married, Agent? Denham. Patrick Denham. And yes. Well, Agent Denham, on this boat, you wouldn't be. I was safe on deck, but I was drowning in an ocean of tits, you know? <laughs> Appropriate that the best moments of my life came immediately before the worst. I was drinking, I was dancing, I was groping, and then I was drugged. I can honestly tell you if someone handed me the pills... I can't honestly tell you if someone handed me the pills or slipped them in my drink. But a blackout brought me from heaven above decks to hell below. That's a little dramatic, don't you think? Two things. No, three things. First, fuck you. Second, look at me. Face down in this fucking backless gown and tell me that I'm being dramatic. And third, yes, it's fucking dramatic. I told you I hadn't raised money for a film in five years. Even I have to admit there might be a reason for that. I apologize. Please, continue. I woke up in hell. Or close enough. I didn't know how much time had passed, but when I came to, I was in the dark. Too weak to move and surrounded by the sounds of snarling. Low growls and bites on the empty air. I screamed for help, but none came. Just when I gave up hope, a door opened and light poured into the room. Belford walked in, his figure outlined in the darkness, and he said it. There are wolves on Wall Street, and they are fucking over the American people. Your exact words from the article. My famous fucking quote. He flicked on the lights, and instantly, he was a picture of cordiality. Bright smile, handsome in a way that made his billion superfluous. George, he said. I'm so glad you got my invitation. Did you like the party? I don't know how he did it, but when he spoke, I believed him. I let down my guard and said it. It started better than it ended. He laughed at that. <laughs> and for a moment, I thought maybe this was a game to him. Some billionaire initiation. Maybe he needed a filmmaker for something, right? Christ. Since this isn't an official interrogation, I can say that you're an idiot. Thanks. <laughs> I figured that out fucking quick. <laughs> the trouble is, George, he said with that perfect smile... I was never much for the arts. I don't care for figurative language. It's so much harder to convert into cash. I care about <laughs> reality. And in truth, I didn't like what you said about me and my associates. There are wolves on Wall Street, and they are fucking over the American people. Have you ever seen a wolf before, George? I nodded my head carefully. I'm surprised by that, he said. You see, this 
is a wolf. He stepped behind a bar and ruled out a cage that contained the wolf I'd heard when I woke up. In Belfort's presence, I had forgotten it existed. Now that I saw it, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. The thing was gaunt, like it hadn't eaten in days, and it returned my stare like it was planning to change that. Belfort kneeled down to the cage, but the wolf only had eyes for me. There are wolves on Wall Street, and they are fucking over the American people. Looking at this creature, I think you would have to agree that that was an unfair comparison. Do I look like a wolf to you, George? No, sir, I stammered. Then why would you say such a thing? Stratton Oakmont is only here to help the American people with sound advice and, dare I say it, winning smiles. Is it so wrong (laughs) that we make a little money doing that? If we didn't, we wouldn't be able to have nice parties like the one you said you were enjoying so much last night. I apologized to him profusely. I said I'd call the paper and make them print a retraction, but he just laughed. You seem like a man of integrity, he said. So I wouldn't want you to change your word without good reason. Tell you what, I'm going to give you an opportunity to spend some quality time with this wolf, and if you still think the comparison is fair, you won't hear from me again. It was an honest pleasure to meet you, George. Good luck with the filmmaking. There was a line wrapped around a pin at the top of the cage, and when Belfort made his way back to the door, he carried the other end of the line with him. Please, I begged, and I looked back and forth between Belfort and the snarling wolf. Please don't let the wolf eat me, I'll do anything! Eat you? Belford laughed. He never said anything about wolves eating the American people. And with that, he pulled the cord and slammed the door. Jesus fucking Christ. For the record, I said fucking over. But I guess he missed that part. So, what do you say, Agent Dunham? Do we have a case against this guy? Case? I told you this was just a private conversation. Technically, he didn't do anything illegal. He rented the wolf from a licensed Hollywood agency, paid the trainer handsomely, and there's no connection between Belford and the drugs found in your system. And what the hell did I just tell you that story for? Because, Mr. Becker, it seems you still haven't learned to keep your mouth shut. I hope I do find something I can bring Belford in on someday. Until then, I thank you for your time. The end. <laughs> And that's it for Sham Fiction Just the Fix, Volume 2. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, If you didn't, or if you did, you know, whatever, we're always looking for feedback. So drop us a line, find us at Sham Fiction on Twitter, check us out on Facebook, or visit our website, shamfiction.com, where you can contact us, check out all of our past episodes, Uh, you can read the text from all of our sham stories, and, uh, and find links to purchase all the original source materials. So... That's it. We'll have a regular episode premiering for you this coming Sunday, as per usual. And remember, may the sham be with you. <laughs>